Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. In 2017, the military gathered a small group of scientists to try and bring the Quantum Leap time travel program back online. Five years later, believing it was the only way to save his fiancée's life, Dr. Ben Song risked everything when he entered the accelerator to travel back in time. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. Ben believed he would only need to complete 18 leaps before he could return to the place and people he calls home. But something went wrong. And for reasons unknown, Ben did not leap home. We hit him tonight. Remember, two guards at the rear. One in the head, one in the chest. And we get inside, you grab the statue, and I will light that place up so there are no survivors. Understood? Understood. <laughs> not bad. For a former TV star whose best days are behind him, am I right? You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 150, The Lonely Hearts Club. You're Neil Russell. Damn right I am. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm a huge fan. Good morning, everyone. I'm sure you've noticed that we are back up and running. What you may not know is, this is the man responsible, Tom Westfall a senior official at the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Unit. He's been working behind the scenes to get Quantum Leap back on his feet. My goal is to make sure no one ever shuts us down again. And to be clear, that is what's at stake. Now, the way we keep that from happening is we show everyone in Washington how important, how noble, and how inspiring Quantum Leap truly is. Hey, can I borrow you a sec? Yeah, sure. Can you talk me through these periodic energy spikes? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so basically, every time Ben leaps, we have to search for and then lock onto his quantum signature, and that takes an enormous amount of energy. These spikes are much bigger than they were three years ago. They are? I cannot believe that you get to hang out with Neil Russell. I don't know. Okay, I'm gonna need a full debrief later, but first we should probably figure out why you're here. Yeah, you think it has something to do with the accident? It sure does. It is April 4th, 2000. That's the day he disappeared. Okay, in the original timeline, Neil was in town to appear on The Tonight Show, but he canceled last minute. He was last seen sailing to Catalina, and his boat was found adrift the next day. And a week later, his body washed up on shore. Ziggy says you're here to get him to The Tonight Show. Apparently that was the real Summer Walsh's assignment, though she clearly failed to do so. Uh, look, I, I'm gonna get another espresso. Do you mind, uh, you want anything? No, I'm, I'm okay. Thank you. Do we know when Summer lost Neil? Uh, I have Summer's expenses for the day. She bought gas to pick up Neil from the airport and bring him here. You paid for breakfast. And that's it. That means I lose him soon. Okay, if we lose him and he gets on that boat, he's gonna die, Ben. He's in the wind. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. And I'm Matt Dale. And today we are talking about Season 2, Episode 4 of Quantum Leap, The Lonely Hearts Club. Ah, uh, what a title. This was described as an inflection point last week in, in the notes. Yes. 
I, I've been looking forward to hearing more about this inflection point. And <laughs> for, the, for the last week, I've been talking to people about their inflection points and asking if they, they noticed a recent inflection point in their lives. Um, I've got a lot of funny looks, but it's been great just throwing that into my vocab. Very natural. How many people have called HR on you? That's what I want to know. <laughs> all of them, Chris, all of them. <laughs> and hey, we're, we're also halfway through this run. I'm being careful with my wording here, whether this is whether this run is uh, the first half of the season or the full season. It's an eight-episode block, and this is episode four. How are we here already? I don't know. Time flies, man. How are we at episode 150 of the Quantum Leap podcast? <gasps> this episode marks episode 150. And I do believe that um, you, Allison, and I have done more than 100 episodes of this podcast since we've taken over from Albie and Heather. That sounds right. If I go quiet during this at all, it's because I'm eating cake. I have a cake right here <laughs> with candles on it. Um, if I scream, it's because I've burnt myself on the candles, but... <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to blow those out before you eat them, but you're British. I don't know what you guys oh, do over we, there. We, so. we don't do that in Britain. No, no, no. That's, that's a weird American <laughs> custom. Blow them out. Where's the fun in that? You stiff upper lip and all that. <laughs> yes. Burnt <Right>. upper lip. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on and keep chewing. Uh, <laughs> yet another thing that got you sent to uh, HR. Um, anyway. You'd, um, you'd think that we don't like this episode by the way that we're talking around everything <laughs> other than getting into the episode. That's usually what we do when we, we can't stand them. Procrastinate. Filibuster. It's inflectioning all over the place this episode, but before we get into some of the main chat, we have some more interviews that we are going to bring you. Uh, Matt, would you care to tell us what we can prepare ourselves to hear after the break? Well, prepare yourself, because we've got two great interviews, and I, I'm honestly so pleased about both of these. So first up, we're going to have uh, Genevieve Terrell who is the costume designer for the show. I was so excited to get the opportunity to talk to her because obviously costumes are one of those things that immediately set the scene within the opening minutes of a leap. And I was not not at all surprised really, but really pleased that she was somebody that was really focused and knowledgeable and was willing to share her process about how she goes about creating a world through the costumes. So absolutely fascinating and uh, really delightful to talk to. So that's just a great interview. And then we've got a second interview, which is a, a bit of an experiment for us. Uh, this, this was a joint interview with Fate's Wide Wheel. So uh, Sam Fain and I both interviewed together Christy Lowry. And uh, Christy is new to the show this season. She's just joined as a, a supervising producer. She's new to the writer's room. And uh, particularly relevant for this episode, she is the writer of Lonely Hearts Club. So Sam and I did a great interview, which you'll hear here. Uh, it's also running on the Fates Wide Wheel podcast, which obviously we, we highly recommend listening to as well. But yeah, we, we tried out doing a joint interview and uh, I think it worked really well. We both managed to get some really interesting information out of her on the making of her episode, but also on, on season two as a whole and how she's found coming into this environment that's already already up and running. So I think listeners are going to love both of these interviews. I'm, I'm just, I'm so happy about them. Christy, as the writer of this episode, had so much to do. So I'm looking forward to hearing all about the process that went into this and everything that they have to juggle and balance in terms of the bigger story arc for the season. 
while they're putting together a decent standalone episode that also makes sense in its own right. Because I feel like this episode, uh, more than any other we've seen in the entire series, and I'm just going to put that as a blanket statement, really walked that line and served both masters in a very good way. Yes. So yeah, so um, hats off to Christy. I guess I'm maybe giving some of my initial impressions, <laughs> but uh, this episode, it's deceptively simple, but it is just jam-packed with so much subtext and so much going on that um, I think we're going to have a lot to discuss about it. So yeah. and not to mention Tim Matheson, who I was gushing about at the end of the last <laughs> episode. So yeah, he's here. He's here. So. Yes. so stay tuned. You're going to be hearing all of those interviews after the break. This is a special treat for all of you who did not get sick of me doing the massive interview dumps during the hiatus that brought us right to the first episode of this new season. So if you've been jonesing for yet more interview content that's hours long, ooh, we got a treat for you. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, before we do that, let's discuss uh, the Lonely Hearts Club. So uh, Matt, if I can get some initial impressions from you, what did you think of this episode? I, I loved it. Now, I I think some of that is because I'm biased towards enjoying romantic comedies, not as much as Albie, who's obsessed with romantic comedies. I'd love to know what he thinks about this. I'm a seasonal rom-com lover, and it's, what, October now, so we're, we're getting towards the Christmas season where there'll be, be lots of Hallmark movies with um, someone from the big city falling in love with someone uh, from... <laughs> The back of beyond and the posters will have lots of red and green on them. And I'm just getting into that mood. And this was the perfect starting course for what's coming up over the next few months in my household. So as a rom-com, I think it was, it was fantastic. So yeah, as you, you so perfectly put, Chris, it's, there's, there's a lot to, a lot to unpack and a lot of, um, a lot of material hiding behind the subtlety. Some great Addison stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm really excited to get to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Now, let me go in saying right off the bat, this was not an episode I expected to enjoy. This was an episode I expected to get through. Uh, I do like Tim Madison, (laughs) and I was excited to see him. I think he's great whenever I see him. But when you tell me Quantum Leap and then you say the word rom-com, I'm not really on board with that. I'm not a rom-com fan. Uh, I have been to the Hallmark movie town where they shoot a lot of those Christmas movies. It's a place called Woodstock, Vermont. Oh, wow. We stayed there one Christmas. But uh, that's as close as I've gotten to a rom-com since I think When Harry Met Sally. So just to give you an indication wow. of- uh, It's not that I eschew the form. It's just not something I find myself gravitating towards. So it's like, okay, I guess this will be the rom-com episode and Albie will sure enjoy it so I'm happy for him but all right we'll, we'll see what it, what it gives us but there is not a lot of calm in this rom this turned out to be one heavy episode with so much going on and so many twists and turns I mean the plot just thickened considerably on so many levels and to package that in a leap with a fantastic guest star who I think carried the freaking episode as well as Raymond or Caitlin. Wow. Just wow. I was so pleasantly surprised at the caliber of this episode that I, 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 I'm still, I'm stunned. I can't wait to talk about so much of it. I feel like I'm a little bit overwhelmed because there's just so much to talk about, even though there are only like two or three main themes. See, I, I think you're, you're letting the very memorable dramatic pieces take over your memory of the episode because 
yes, there's very little out-and-out comedy, but there's just such a sense of fun throughout it as, as we've got this more mature leading man kind of bouncing around and Ben bouncing after him so excitably about doing, doing all this cool, crazy stuff. <laughs> it, it's just It's just fun. There doesn't have to be one-liners for it to be a comedy. And... I mean, it still had one of my, my uh, yeah, my favourite one-liner of the season so far of... Uh, oh, she's marrying Michael Stevens, their co-star on the show. Ben! And he's got a samurai sword! <laughs> had me giggling. It was uh, such a funny line, but there's a lot of stuff I would still describe as comedy throughout this that you, you can't... It was just in the physical performances of, of the two bouncing off each other and getting excited for this madcap plan. Mm, the physical performances I thought were good, and just seeing Raymond run around in those sensible heels, I thought that yes. that was neat. Uh, I noticed that, and there's a scene when uh, Neil tells him to buckle up, and he's running after Neil, and he mimes buckling a seatbelt. I thought that made me laugh out loud every time I saw it. And I watched the episode three times, so yeah, <laughs> it just cracked me up because he's just so earnest. He's such a nerd. Yeah. And that, that's the thing. It's, um, it was Ben, maybe Raymond in his happy place. Uh, and we saw a bit of that in a decent proposal, but it was, it was so much more here for some reason. Uh, I think maybe they just, they, they wrote to raise strengths more than they had done before. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. And I mean, this episode should have been an ungodly mess, in my opinion. Uh, Neil's journey in this is the crib notes of everything that's going on in Quantum Leap since the second season began. He's got a lot of straight-out declarations that I think broadcast where they want the show to go in season two, where mm -hmm. the show is at currently, and his experiences in this sort of mirror everything that's going on with our main cast. For all the rom-com elements, this was so heavy with themes yeah. of love and loss and letting go. And finding something new to focus on or something new that, that, that makes you, you. And if we want to talk about Neil's journey a little bit, I think one of the, one of the best things he said was to Ben, like right out at the beginning, it seems like the mandate for the series as we move into the second season, there are adventures to be had. You know, I uh, certainly shed my fair share of tears over lost love, but uh, as they say, to weep is to make less the depth of grief. Summer, can I let you in on a little secret? Every day when you wake up, there is an adventure to be had. Some are fun, uh, some are scary, and some are flat out stupid. But no matter how you slice it, life is meant to be lived. Let's reset Ben's brain here and let's reset audience expectations here. This is Quantum Leap. It's not a mystery box show. It's not a show about some guy leaping around anymore to save his girlfriend and that's it. It's about adventure. It's about going on and doing bigger and better types of leaps. So that right there gives me hope for the scope of where we're going to see the series going. Do you think I'm reading too much into that? No, no, I, I think you're absolutely spot on. It was a cool moment, and there's there's a lot of that throughout this episode. But yeah, they are. We're halfway through this block, as I mentioned, and I think that this is an attempt to make the pivot clear at the midway point. Yeah, midway point. That's a good way to put it. I guess they have been building up to this, and yeah, it's, it doesn't even occur to me that this might be the fourth of only eight episodes. I mean, I hope it's not. Either way, it is because we're we're going to have a mid season break after this. So even if it's the fourth of eight episodes. 
for a month or two, it's still, we, we have this block that we are partway through. I'm liking the pacing of this season so far because we had the Ben side, we had the project side last week um, in Closure Encounters. We had sort of the messy coming together of both of those sides. And mm -hmm. I think that I had mentioned on last week's show how much I was looking forward to seeing how they have Ben and Addison still be Ben and Addison and make the show work going forward with this new relationship that they have or the lack of relationship they have at this point. But this show just completely exploded all of that. It it blew it up and said, no, mm -hmm. it's not going to be that. Throw those notions away. And that was Ben's big lesson. I mean, Neil talks about, again, he's like the Jiminy Cricket of the script because he keeps on, he keeps on bringing <laughs> these, these pithy life lessons and he's talking about how- Still, I made decisions that destroyed what we had. And it was like a part of me was, was torn out. I lost my other half. drifting through life lost well that shouldn't work because it's so on the nose but god damn it did that work <laughs> yeah and we we've seen a, a lot of that kind of stuff throughout the series where ben has that moment of yeah th this is going on in the leap but actually this reflects what's going on with me huh but it's it's usually just drip fed out a little bit at a time this, this episode drives that home again and again but it never gets tired for me I'm trying to remember the, the episode where I think they did it most effectively in season one, and it was probably Fellow Travelers. And I, I can't yes. even remember the context. I just remember that episode standing out to me for that very reason. The fact that the Leap plot mirrored Ben's personal journey at that point and what was going on in the series at that time. Yeah, there, there was a lot of um, stuff about trust there and the fact that he hadn't shared information with Addison because he wants to go off and do his own thing. And then that, that was what was going on in the leap as well. So, And if I recall correctly, at the time, I said that this might be a good new paradigm for Quantum Leap with a broader cast <laughs> and a bigger team. It's to link the leaps thematically to what might be going on in the character's yeah. life, whatever character that might happen to be for the week. Who are we going to spotlight this week? Is it going to be Ian? Is it going to be Jen? Is it going to be Magic? And I feel like they did that to varying degrees, but they didn't really focus on it too much beyond that episode. It did creep in here and there, but it was never used in the way that I, I thought it might be used. Yeah. So... I'm wondering, you know, if if obviously we're going to be talking to the writer, so there's conscious intention there. How much of that shaded the way that Christy approached this script, and just the mandate that she had? And uh, I can't, I can't wait to hear what she has to say about all that yeah. stuff because to me, that's about process. But you have, like I said, you have to serve a couple of different masters, and it seems very difficult. It seems very daunting. Yeah. I think it's a testament to the talent that she was able to do it and also give us probably the best Ben Addison stuff that we've ever seen. Oh, yes. Yeah. There's no point in delaying talking about it. Their confrontations in this episode were mind-blowing. It was so good. And wow. I thought that, yeah, I thought that last week's stuff that Ben laid down on Addison when he was talking about why did you desert me? Why did you bury me? All that stuff when they were breaking into the military installation. Uh, that was just, that was prelude. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. Was, that was him having a rant, her not responding to that too much. And 
here she responds. He, he pushes it just a little bit too far and we get the full story. And I know I've, I've been following this stuff online, all the discussions uh, on, on social media where some people are saying, well, Addison should have waited forever. Some people saying I completely understand why Addison couldn't and how tough that must have been for her. It felt like, I know this was all filmed months ago, so it wouldn't have been, but it felt like that scene was addressing uh, one of those groups. And, and it was the, the writer through Addison explaining, this is why she couldn't wait. And this was how hard it was. It wasn't an easy decision for her. It is easier to say that you would wait when you were not the one who had to wait. When you were the one who left and not the one that got left behind. Do you know what I did when they told me that they were going to shut Quantum Leap down? I tried to jump in the accelerator, hoping that it would send me to you. You know what else I did? I gave a eulogy at your funeral. So do not tell me how hard it has been for you because I waited. I grieved. And then I buried you along with the life that we were supposed to have together. A life that you left me in alone. I'm firmly in the camp of this whole situation is messed up and no one's happy and it's no one's fault but that doesn't mean that it's Addison's fault. So I was I was really happy to see that. Now whether uh, whether the the viewers will see it that way, um, I'd be really interested to know if anyone that's been anti-Addison the last couple of episodes feels differently after that scene. Or if they're just still firmly on the, no, she should have waited forever. I, it was just, it sent chills through me as I was watching it. The only thing that I'm really glad that we didn't see because that would have been a little melodramatic is when she said, and even when they tried to shut down the project, I tried to jump into the accelerator to come and join you. I don't know if I, how, how would that play out on screen? Would that look hokey? I mean, it sounds good in the argument and you can picture it and it works in the scene, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, trying I'm to glad you didn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that says better left off camera, but it's still, yeah, it's still an effective way to, to show her dedication to what they had. And this this had a, another, and we've, we've spoken about this a couple of times so far this season, that scene was another one where Caitlin was coming out with some great emotional stuff and I 100% bought every single beat. Ray had some lines but a lot of what he was being most powerful with was his reactions to her and the look on his face and just just some of that the physical work he was doing there was some really strong stuff it's surprising me how much i'm enjoying it when ben isn't saying anything at all those have been some of the my favorite moments so far this season I agree. Raymond just has such a wonderfully expressive face and he knows how to use it to just convey subtly depths of emotion. And he's done it now consistently throughout these first four episodes. Again, there's, the, I don't know, the paradigm shift or just a different mentality on set or something. Maybe Dean is bringing something new to the flavor of the series, but it seems to me that we're getting much more subtle character work than we have in the entire first run, because I, I don't know, there was, Ben was weirdly flat in a lot of leaps. And we had discussed his lack of reaction to being in mm -hmm. new situations, because I think they were just so busy trying to move the story forward and get all the plot elements done. I think that they've put a special focus now on the more human side of it. And 
as a result, we get these just these terrific subtle performances from all of the cast. It 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 yeah. it has sort of a ripple effect because it's it's a whole different sensibility, and it seems to me like it's to the to the betterment. It's like the rising tide lifts all boats, kind of thing. Anyway, it's, mm. I think it's a rising tide because I'm enjoying it more than what we were <laughs> seeing in the first season. So, what I loved most and. You can maybe laud Addison for this. For people that are hating on Addison, oh, you should have waited forever. Ben is like saying, I left to save you and you left me. You couldn't wait. I wanted her to turn around and say, fuck you. Nobody asked you to save me. That was a choice that you made. And now you're going to blame me that you're stuck in time over it. Now I have to feel guilty. It's almost like he's mansplaining to her the sacrifices <laughs> that he's made and now he's in this pickle and she just she just gives it back to him with both barrels without calling him out for just his sheer his sheer fucking hubris you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> a good star trek reference there I, and this is what i mean by the, this this whole situation is so frustrating in a good way and there is there's no one really to blame because what ben did was honorable and done with good intentions and we've spoken about this before. We spoke about this when we were when we were covering fellow travellers. But clearly, he made those decisions, and he's landed himself in this this awful situation, which had a knock on impact on her. And what if, again, going back to the fellow travellers theme, what if he had trusted Addison and the rest of the the team and said, "I've just learnt this. What are we going to do about this as a team?" You know, it, it never even occurred to me. I guess you wouldn't have had a whole first season otherwise. Ben wouldn't be a leaper. Of course. But these things are coming back to haunt him now. Yeah. Again. Yeah. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Yeah. Hmm. We had that scene. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but we had the scene between Ian and apparently Ian is back together with Rachel. Yes. And she said, Don't you dare say keeping a secret from the person you supposedly love isn't lying. I can deal with your savior complex. Some days it's even admirable. But I told you I wouldn't do secrets anymore. Rachel, Rachel, please. Rachel, I'm sorry. You always are. Okay, so we know now that a couple of the characters in the show maybe have a penchant for, (laughs) quote, rescuing their significant (laughs) others. And it's just nice to see the person who is supposedly the object of being rescued turning around and saying, nobody asked you. You you didn't have yeah. you, you thought you had to do it. Don't blame me for where you're at now. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff, but heart wrenching at the same time. Yeah. Oh. So. Okay, breathe, Chris. Breathe. So, hey, some funny stuff there, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is a lightweight episode. Let's rob a wax museum of a tuxedo and uh, break into a wedding. Yeah. And this is the funny rom-com kind of stuff. Yeah, there's, 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 there's so, so much lovely levity in between all the heavy stuff. Keeps me happy. So um, Ian and Rachel, huh? I mean, apparently they had gotten back together in the course of the three years since we saw yeah. them last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were pretty little lattes the last time we saw them, were they not? Yes, now now it's sushi. That's obviously, it's uh, th- things are more serious Sushi is serious. <laughs> it's sushi serious. Rachel's played by, refresh my memory. Uh, Alice Kremelberg. And that is Mason's real life significant other, is she not? It is. And I, I've got to say, back in Family Style, when she first appeared, I remember a number of people saying, 
oh yeah, great that it was it was Mason's real life partner because you would never have got that performance otherwise, or that or at least that there were shortcuts that they could take to get a a real performance. And I sort of bought that, but there wasn't that much to latch onto in the scenes in family style. So I thought, oh, yeah, okay, fine. I still think pretty much anyone could have done that. Uh, no offence to Alice's acting, but just in terms of the interplay between them, I didn't feel best use was made out of using Mason's real-life partner. And I, I don't think it was written for Mason's real-life partner, so uh, she was just cast as people are. So perhaps that was that was why I never I never felt that. Obviously, with her returning... Now they know it's Mason's real life partner and they push things a bit. And oh my God, that performance between them. I, yeah, I do not believe the finest actors in the world could have pulled that off without them actually being in a real relationship. There were so many just micro looks they were giving each other throughout that I bought that completely. Such a tough scene. And I could imagine both actors walking off set and having to breathe. And I think it was great because not only did it give us more depth for Ian and Rachel and really make us feel invested in them as as a couple, even though we've only mm-hmm. seen her once, but it was in service to getting rid of whatever little mystery we had lingering in this. Um, I don't know if you recall in, in the last show last week when we were talking about Ian's, quote, big mystery, it didn't come up in Closure Encounters. And you had said that you hope either they forget about it until there's a previously on in episode eight, mm-hmm. and then it's all done with then. Yeah. You didn't want them to drip it and drab it out over the course of the next few episodes. And no. Do you feel like, I feel like maybe they are, but I think we got a lot more here than I was expecting. It's not just coy looks and an oh no and to be continued. I mean, we actually know now exactly what Ian is worried about. You needed someone to make you the most powerful chip on earth. I introduced you to my boss. That's the extent of my involvement. I know, I know, but the chip, the chip is transmitting Ziggy's code out of HQ, presumably back to him. I, I'm so curious to know for like bigger picture stuff, what you think of that development. And you know what? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to backtrack slightly because of the way they're handling this. If this were the first season, we would have had, uh, Jen and Magic driving around LA trying to find out the source of this chip. And it would have been all about that. This wasn't. This was a scene about Ian and Rachel's relationship. And it just happened to involve a chip. I, I didn't feel like if you, if you want to call it a mystery box, whatever, this chip storyline was front and center. It was the trigger for a scene about people. And that's what I I enjoyed. I know I've said this repeatedly. I enjoyed the mystery box aspect of season one, but it was plot, plot, plot. This is people and there happens to be a plot that's triggering it. So yeah, I I don't mind the fact that I, I, I didn't want it to come up because I was worried it would become a big thing. My fears were wrong. Um, I was really glad with the way that it, it, it was dealt with. So it's fine. The the only thing is, I just, I do feel like retrospectively now, Ian got someone to make a chip and they put it into Ziggy. It, it feels like a couple of episodes back, we were saying, oh my goodness me, what's Ian done? Not actually that much. <laughs> Maybe to recap for people that haven't been following or just out of convenience, 
So we learned in the second episode that Ian said that they left a light on for Ben for that one in a billion chance that Ziggy would be able to ping Ben and then notify Ian and then Ian can come and rescue him and bring him home and, and all that stuff. Yeah. And then Jen alludes to the fact at the end that Ian actually didn't do just that. There was something bigger at play. And I guess this is that bigger thing. Ian commissioned Rachel's boss to make some kind of super microchip to help in the effort of tracking Ben. Jen helped install that chip into Ziggy illegally. And now that chip, since they've found Ben, has been sending data back to Rachel's boss that is also potentially revealing not only Ziggy's secrets, but the fact that they are part of a time travel experiment. So my question to you, and I know your brain is right where my brain is, who is Rachel's boss? Is it is it Logan Thos? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I haven't gone there, but yes. <laughs> Let's hope it is. Wow, so, so many possibilities. I I don't think it's going to be anything tied to the original series. I I think it will be some businessman that wants to build time travel for his own evil corporate intentions. Well, I mean, that that could have been how Lothos started, right? True, true. I'd, I'd be of two minds. Like, I would love to get the connective tissue back to the original series and maybe bring in some of those wackier elements. I mean, if we're going to have, quote, like grand adventures and leaping now, it seems to me like they're a little bit willing to put more of the fantastical stuff in it, perhaps, like shifting the horizons just a little bit. Will it get to be season five gimmick? I don't know. Um, yeah. Do I want it to get to be season five gimmick? Fanboy, yes. <laughs> Quantum Leap fan, sort of, but not really. I don't know, man. Like, would, What would you embrace? Would you embrace that if they did it? How would you feel about that? Yeah, it's it's tough because there's the Quantum Leap fanboy in me that uh, wants all these boxes ticked. But I also don't think they could do it and make it good TV. I, I don't want my own beloved show to jump the shark just to keep me happy, um, which is what I feel like would happen if they started doing doing all that stuff. I, I would, I'd rather they forge their own path. Uh, I mean, well, but, one might argue, one might argue that they jumped the shark when they introduced evil leapers to begin with. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe that hurdle has been cleared. <laughs> and, and also, th- this is the guy that just... As I was establishing a few minutes ago, I, I was saying, oh, yeah, I hope they don't bring up the chip again, because that, that would be rubbish. And then they brought up the chip again, and it was one of the best scenes this season. So I do not know how good the writing can get, clearly. Yes, I think it would be a risk, but if they could if they could do it, whether it's Evil Leapers, Lothos, something else that we haven't thought of that ties back to the law, okay, I'm, I'm willing to wait and see. But I would also embrace a completely new storyline of some sort would you think that this would be introducing sort of a new recurring big bad yeah it could be this is something that could be could cross over seasons we got some potential there i i like world building so i'm i don't know how big a fan i am of the notion of like we had with season one this nice neatly packed 18 episode story that finished and now Martinez is gone, Janice is gone, that's it, boom, done. <laughs> Was it really neatly packed? <laughs> well, neatly in that it, it ended and we've now said we're not looking back. 
It's, it's it did done. End. Yes, it did end. Okay. It, it ended neatly. <laughs> well, all right, no, it ended. <laughs> but yeah, I I like the idea of yeah maybe bringing bringing something in that crosses over the seasons. We'll see. I, I yeah, it, there's there's so much out there. It, it's one of those things when that came up, I couldn't even comprehend the number of possibilities, including it being Sam having leapt into someone and trying to steal Ziggy's code to help bring him home. Great minds think yes. alike. I was thinking, could it be Sam involved in some way? See, see I, I don't know how they'd pull that off, but could be. Uh, and why would Sam need Ziggy's code to come home? Uh, but again, that's just going on my interpretation of where Sam is after Mirror Image. The show can do anything it wants because it's the show. Hell so yeah. if they say Sam is stranded and needs help coming home, then Sam is stranded and needs help coming home. Yeah. Um, I personally don't view it that way, but could it be a backdoor into getting Scott back on the show? Hmm. Hmm. And would we want him to come back on the show as sort of an adversary? Oh. He would have his Mirror Universe Archer haircut, the spiky buzz cut. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dyed black. Died black. He would not have Sam's golden retriever locks from season no. one, season two. <laughs> <laughs> I was just listening to our uh, our Machiko episode, and Allison kept on bringing up Scott's hair. <laughs> it's it's been on my mind, but hair or not, I think uh, it, it'd be nice to see Scott in some capacity. I don't know if I'd want him to be the big bad. I mean, this could potentially be the quantum leap version of the Cro Mags. So. Do we want that? I knew you would get that. That is harsh, man. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, bringing bringing a recurring villain into an anthology series, dangerous. Well, see, now I think we already might have a a, a recurring villain. Tom. Do we trust Tom? Do we hate Tom? Yeah. (laughs) I knew that's where you were going. Yeah. Enlighten me. Enlighten me with the Matt Dale take on this Tom situation. He says all the right things to Addison, and he does a really good. I mean, it's not an amazing speech, but it, they seem to the, the team accept it well. He does so in that sense. He does a, a good speech, and everyone likes him. And I don't trust people that everyone likes. So I've got. There's no reason to dislike him or to think that he's up to anything evil, except this is TV, and we know. That's often a route in. I don't yet see... When we started hearing other characters, he was introduced through other characters in a way with uh, Jen saying, oh yeah, we know why you love him because we all love him as well. And they introduced it like that. But then he doesn't really show much warmth. He flirts with Addison and says, oh yeah, the hologram's all like beautiful and intelligent. and But he's not actually warm. I don't think if I knew him, I would like him. I just think you're powerful and successful and cool, fine. But like, love, I hmm, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Jury is still out. Yeah, it's almost like he's 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 blowing smoke up her ass half the time. It's like yeah, okay, we, yeah. You're, you're you're a little too supportive, man. And yes. Could this be backlash? Are we just are we just you know butthurt fanboys that want to see Ben and Addison back together? <laughs> uh, I don't think that I especially am though, because I while no. I do enjoy Raymond and Caitlin, and I think that they have a certain chemistry on screen. I think that it's actually much more exciting for the way that they're setting things up, especially given how this episode ended. I'd much rather see a quantum leap in which the leaper is unencumbered 
and might have different attachments than to have the Ben and Addison can't get together show anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think the show is smart for maybe getting away from that, especially since everything has changed. The other thing that gave me pause when it comes to Tom, why shouldn't he be anything but just the sweet, sincere guy that Addison fell in love with and that everybody likes and respects? Why not? Because according to Magic, he is a senior official at the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Unit. (laughs) And I've said time and time again that scientists have always been pawns of the military. I don't don't think it's you that said that time and time again, is it? (laughs) Wasn't that David Marcus? Okay, okay, if you want to get, you know, technical about it. So, I, yeah. Yeah, he's an overgrown Boy Scout then. Is that what you're saying about Tom? But yeah, d- Defense Innovation Unit. So, a, yeah, group of people that might want to get their hands on the technology, not so much being hands-off and saying, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll chuck money at it. What might they actually want with it? Yeah, and there are a couple other things that kind of allude to them using this in some other way than research uh, because magic says something to the effect of, and this gets into another huge thing that Tom postulates that I think we really need to dive into, but magic basically says, I don't think that that would stop other leapers. Like, so I think that their intent is to, once they quote, fix the machine and they're able to get people home, they're maybe intending to have more than one leaper at a time doing something, but what? So are we going to go down sort of like that military espionage route? Is the project going to become under siege from within? Yeah. It's like the new version of the committee, except the committee doesn't want to take no for an answer when it comes to preventing the U-2 incident. (laughs) They don't want to hear about GTFW. They want to get somebody in to actually facilitate them getting the job done instead of saying that it can't be done. Would you like it if it went there? Um. Not if the show actually became that. I'd like it if... I, I'd, I'd be happy if that turned out to be Tom's backstory. Not not that I think it has to be. There's plenty of ways it could go. But I think if it turns out that this is why the military is interested in it, fine. If it actually became a show where the, the military got what they wanted and they started doing that episode after episode, nah. Wow, I hadn't even thought about them maybe actually coming in and taking over. To me, it was just like, would you want to see that as a potential threat that we oh, have okay. to start contending with? Uh, but I mean, yeah, I don't know what you're talking You're talking about the end game. You're talking about that it's happened. Um, no, I wouldn't want to see that either. They could do that. They could have season two ending with the military taking over and then season three is all a, a militaristic one and then they get overthrown and season four is back to normal, something like that. They they could do it as a as a short-term story arc, but I, I don't see how they would mesh that with with what Quantum Leap's all about. But I, I'm not I'm not gonna be one of these fans that complains about something that's in my head canon or something that maybe the writers are sitting there thinking, well that's that's a ridiculous idea. Of course we'd never do that. So I'm I'm just gonna trust that the writers wouldn't go down that route. But if they do it would certainly be unexpected. It better be damn well written. Yeah, exactly. It would be a big risk. Personally, I wouldn't want to see that. And I hope that Tom's story stays. Sort. I hope it's not a cover. I hope he stays who he is, or at least if he's a little bit more than that, that it doesn't lead into some giant military drama, because I think that that might lose me. I, I, I Quite frankly, just the idea of it, I find it tedious. 
Yeah. I would hate to see them do that. But like we've said, we're at the halfway point and there are four more episodes in the can and we're going to get what we're going to get. So it just yeah. remains to be seen. Um, I, I, I just, whew, I would just hope they wouldn't go that <laughs> way. But Tom did say something quite fascinating to me. I wonder if we're talking about the same thing and if it was fascinating to you for the same reason it was fascinating to me. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, no, you, please, please. As I said, great minds. I, I trust that you're going to read my mind here, as Gordon Lightfoot would sing, as was playing on the harp during the wedding that uh, Ben was trying to break up. But if you could read my mind, Matt Dale, what, what a tale my thoughts would tell. What are they telling? <laughs> so something happened in Tom's life that, although he doesn't say as much, maybe went wrong and could arguably be put right. Tom's got a dead wife. When my wife died, I remember suddenly feeling how powerless we all are. Now that's interesting. Oh, I wasn't going there at all. Oh, what were you talking about? We'll come back to the dead wife thing. No, it might all be part and parcel. So you think that Tom might be angling to rescue his dead wife, like Ben was angling to rescue Addison? More than that, though. Oh, um, go, go, so, go, please. So, so, oh, wow, so yeah, this is juicy. This, Everybody, this, stop what you're doing. <laughs> pull over. Pull over so you don't crash into a ditch if you're driving, because Matt's going to lay down some theories on you right now. Yeah, but this is, this is full-on reaching from, like, two words to extrapolating out an entire story arc. So, yes, could be Tom's motivation, but whether it's Tom that prompts it or whether it's GTFW that prompts it, Ben has a leap where he has to save Tom's wife's life. He succeeds. This leads to a new timeline where Tom and Addison never got together. But because Addison is part of the project and so close to it, she remembers the whole timeline where she got together with Tom. Tom is off out there living with his wife, who is still alive. Maybe he's even still in the project and she has to face him every single day. And suddenly she's in a position where... She has all these memories and she's got these memories of this relationship and then immediately she has to pivot to accepting that he's with someone else, which is exactly what Ben's just been through. I was not thinking that at all. <laughs> I mean, that, wow. as I say, extrapolation. If 10% of that turns out to be true, I'll be shocked. But it would be a nice parallel I don't want things to be bad for Addison. I like Addison. And I don't, she's, she's gone through enough. Leave Addison alone. But if they're going to mess with Addison even more, I think taking Tom out of her life through timey-wimey stuff would be pretty brutal, but pretty amazing. Yeah, no, wow, you have such a timey-wimey brain. That is not where I was going at all. Uh, mine was so much more surface. Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought or as uh, innovative... <laughs> Mine's not smart. That's just crazy stuff, but... <laughs> I need an aluminium hat to get on your level. Um, no, what what I... I wow, that... Wow. Jeez. <laughs> now that's... My brain is now racing on those possibilities. I had not thought of that at all. What I focused on was that conversation between Tom and Magic in which Tom postulates... First Sam Beckett, now Ben Song. In both cases, our assumption was something went wrong. And if we can fix it, one or both of them could come home. That is the goal. But what if the engine of Quantum Leap is sacrifice? What if sacrifice is the price we have to pay for change? For 30 years, we assumed the technology was broken. But what if 
It has to be a one-way trip. So is sacrifice what's required in order to go out there and, and make a difference? And to me, that is a fascinating conjecture, especially on a show that has done its level best up until this point to basically ignore the bigger philosophical questions and guiding forces that could be GTFW. And the W is really where I've always been or, you know, whatever, something that we haven't even conceived of. So Mm -hmm. it's a fascinating thought experiment to me. And I, I, I would love to see, like, I can't imagine that they would just bring it up as a side conjecture and then never talk about it again. So do you think that this would become a bigger plot element as the story goes along? Are they going to be exploring ideas of sacrifice and the necessity of sacrifice when it comes to leaping? Interesting. I, yeah. I didn't think they would. I, I made the same observations as you, that that moment felt like something that would have been very much at home in the original series where it was it, it wasn't about the technology, it was about the philosophy. And then in the new series, it, it's been very much, oh yeah, Sam Sam used to believe it was God, but this is we we have a machine, we have technology, this is what does it. And what Tom says here does mesh back to the original series quite nicely. I did think though it was a one-off, but I'd welcome more discussion of that. And if they can find a way of actually making that real I don't know how you'd explore that besides by conjecture. Yeah. But if they yeah. can do it, that, that would be cool. If they could figure out a way of bringing that into a storyline. Um, I'm not even going to say a for instance, because I cannot. I'm not smart enough to figure out how that would work. I agree with you 100%. I don't know how you do it besides in the abstract, but I had no idea that my little quantum leap brain was hungry for stuff like this, but apparently it's famished because I latched right onto that and I said, what does he mean? How how are they going to do that? And then it started to (laughs) clash with other ideas I have in my head of the nature of leaping since mirror image. I know I'm a broken record, but what's the sacrifice if Sam has decided he's going to keep leaping and that's why he didn't come home? And that's, like I said- just earlier. That's my take on it. They can do anything they want. It's their show. And when they do, it's canon. So I just would hope that they would do it in a way that aligns with the messages I think that I've taken away from the original series and extrapolates and expands on those rather than contradict and push all of those aside. Yeah. Uh Poor Chris. Poor Chris. This is a this is a dangerous time to be a fan. I might be I might be as delicate as Ben. I might lash out at you, Matt, but I won't mean it. <laughs> it's it's fine. I'll I'll have my counter arguments ready, Addison style. <laughs> uh, it'll be ugly. We'll have a big ugly cry and then we'll move on. <laughs> so speaking of moving on, that ending, huh? <gasps> oh yeah. It brings us back to to the power of you have often said, Matt, that any given episode of Quantum Leap rises and falls according to the caliber of the guest star. Yeah. And I know I started this episode out basically, you know, fanboying all over Tim Matheson. I didn't even know I was a Tim Matheson fanboy. But the way I am he, now. Yeah, the way he teed up everything that happened in this leap, that last scene when he tried that last ditch rom-com effort to rescue the wife, to, to get the wife and to rescue his relationship with his wife, his ex-wife, and her saying, this is real life. That's not how this works. It's not some movie. And then he's in the car with Ben, terrified to go see his daughter to the point where he's crying. Like, I teared up on that scene both times that I've watched it. What am I supposed to do? Just walk up there, knock on the door and just say, I'm, I am so sorry. 
Sounds like a start. <laughs> what if she slams the door in my face? She won't. What if she doesn't answer? She will. Oh, she hates me. I didn't know that I cared about this character until I cared about this character. So it shows you how how effective the portrayal was, even though he was doing, quote, light stuff. He got under my skin. And then I felt so bad for him at the end. And, you know, the fear that he had. But it was such a beautiful lesson for Ben to have to go through and to learn that. It's like the wife said to him, you need to find a new dream. Mm -hmm. And it's like Ben took all of that to heart. That's when he apologized to Addison. I ignored you. I snapped at you. I yelled at you, Addison. I don't want to do that. I know. We're going to figure this out. No, we won't. I have to give up the fantasy. I have to give up the happy ending. You can't be my hologram anymore, Addison. He literally has to walk away from her. This is too hard. This is going to screw me up. So we need to find a new dream, both of us. The Tim Matheson piece, because I mean, you've, you touched on two really important scenes there. The Tim Matheson piece, I felt it was one of those moments when when we were speaking to Deborah a couple of weeks back now about the, the season as a whole. She indicated that it was going to be one of these kind of story arcs where you'd get to the end of the season or at least this block of eight, there would be a twist and it would force you to go back and reevaluate things and you'd realise that there was stuff hidden in plain sight. This felt like one of those with that character. And to your point about him getting under your skin, he's this big, larger-than-life character that you, you kind of fall in love with in a way for just how cheesy and charming he is. And that final scene just made me immediately want to go back and watch the whole thing again. To watch it with the appreciation that what we were seeing was covering something up the whole way. And that just made it even more tragic. So I, I loved all that, that stuff, that, that twist. And when he's, he's sitting there crying and he's kind of shrunk down into his tux, it's, he looks so small. It's brilliant. And as for that final moment, the, the fact that it triggered Addison and Ben, um, that discussion, I think you've, you've said everything I would want to say about that, except just, from a practical point of view, it was unnecessary for him to walk away. He was about to leap. He could have just stood there and leapt. From a TV drama language of uh, the, the camera and, and everything like that point of view, it was amazing seeing him walking away from her uh, and her in, out of focus in the background. I was just, I was in pieces. It really hit. Not only because of the performances, but that simple act of him walking away. Gorgeous. So symbolic. So symbolic. Ben walks away. He leaps out and that's that. We don't know where he's going to be next week. We have no idea mm. what's going on. So I'm really excited to see how they follow up on that. I guess maybe there was a method to their madness of making it so that just about anybody could be the hologram in this new iteration of Quantum Leap because yeah. we certainly are not going to be able to rely on Addison's brainwaves <laughs> as we go forward. So interesting and uh, a good turn. And once again, signaling different adventures, new adventures, bigger adventures. It's such a sweeping declaration of we're in new waters here. This is a new show. This is, I would say, a third iteration of Quantum Leap that we haven't seen yet that we're poised for. So I don't know if you have any other any other thoughts because I feel like that almost sums up my final impressions of the episode. Is there anything in this that we need to cover that we haven't? 
I, I have no other notes. I, I would just say, if, if since you've done most of your final impressions, I'll just add mine to say I, I was concerned coming onto this recording that you were going to have said this episode is a rom-com, it's dopey, I don't like it. Uh, and I, I was going to spend an hour arguing with you. Um, so I'm so <laughs> relieved that you saw a lot of the same stuff I did. And uh, this is such a good one in spite of itself. I can't imagine this looking very good when they were breaking this in the writer's room. Uh, it's, it seems like it's an episode that shouldn't work, but wow, it does. Yeah, and I think maybe it's because they wrote it specifically in the rom-com style because, oh, this is where we get Ben and Addison back together. And then they completely mm-hmm. subvert those expectations because this isn't a movie. This is real life, even though it's yeah. it's not real life. It's a movie, <laughs> but still. Um, yes. it, yeah, it, I think it, it took a great stand and to set it in Hollywood and to set it in the land of make-believe only to have it come crashing down to reality is just another way that they were subverting the expectations. So they knew exactly what they were doing to us here. And um, they used every trick in the book to the hilt Mm -hmm. in a good way, not in a cheesy way, not in a deceptive way. I don't feel betrayed by this episode. I don't feel like it set me up for a fall. I feel like it brought me to the place that I needed to be, to be in the headspace to go on watching this version of Quantum Leap. And- I'm liking it 10 times better than anything I've seen before on the Revival series. So kudos, kudos to this app. Yeah, yeah, such a fantastic one. So much fun. Yeah, and I think that puts this discussion of the Lonely Hearts Club in the books. But don't go anywhere because after the break, we will bring you our interviews with Genevieve Terrell and Christy Lowry. Stay tuned. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. I'm Jethro. And I'm Matt. And we're the co-hosts of the Drunkard's Walk podcast. Do you know what the St. Pancras Railway Station, Hydrox Cookies, and the Ragamuffin Cat all have in common? They're all pages on Wikipedia. And on Drunkard's Walk, we go from one random Wikipedia page to another only through the internal links of Wikipedia. That's right. And we get those destination pages from guests that come on the show that we talk to and find out why they give us those pages. And there's a little drinking and a lot of arguing. So check out Drunkard's Walk wherever you find your podcasts. This is Dean Jarris, executive producer of Quantum Leap, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Matt, um, I know I said that I didn't have any more points to make, but I forgot to mention the very coolest thing in the episode. Maybe the coolest thing in all of Quantum Leap history, new series are old. What's that? That whole part where the characters are sitting around HQ reading books. (laughs) Riveting. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, look, it was worth it because it was a, a fun scene and it had some fun moments. It stretched credulity. A bit. That an AI computer that we know from the past experiences emotions, of course Ziggy could have done that. <laughs> I mean, she could read Shakespeare and understand love. So Yes. I, I was just, I was immediately reminded, for some reason, I don't know if you were as well, of the scene in Star Trek VI where they <laughs> worry you. that the Universal Translator <laughs> would be recognized, so we have to do it the old-fashioned way. And you're like, what? But it's funny, so whatever. <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess. It's like, where did he get like 17 copies of this ancient <laughs> memoir that look, you know, like know. beautiful hardcovers with the dust jackets intact? And it was just like, come on. I believe this, like I like I believe horror can't speak conversational Klingon to get them through a border post. I mean, yeah, yes. oh, we need giant dictionaries. It's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry. Uh, I guess maybe I had over the break, I could reflect on something that I didn't like about the episode. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Christy, I didn't mean it. If that's the worst we get from this episode, we're still doing pretty good. And um, yeah, yeah. So uh, Matt, do you want to tee this one up? Because we do have the two interviews that we discussed on our way uh, into the break, and uh, we're starting with, with Genevieve, are we not? We are. So yeah, Genevieve Terrell, the costume designer, and um, yeah, I'm just going to throw straight to this because she does such a good job of speaking for herself. So this is Genevieve. Leapers, you are about to watch an interview with Genevieve Terrell, but before that, I wanted to share something with you which came as a bit of a surprise to me. Um, I ran this interview with Genevieve on a Friday, on a Friday evening, and the day after that, I was chatting with Caitlin Bassett, um, not for an interview, uh, we were just swapping some messages, and I mentioned that I'd spoken to Genevieve, and she said, oh, Genevieve's a saint. I said, what do you mean? And she said, okay, you have to find a way to put this story that I'm about to share with you in the interview. Uh, the interview had already been recorded. It was a little bit too late to do it during the recording. So I'm going to share with you what Caitlin shared with me now uh, before the interview starts. So this is, um, in Caitlin's words, when we were filming uh, the first season, my aunt died. She was like a second mother to me, and it was brutal. To get me to her funeral, I had to get written out of a few scenes in episode 109, Fellow Travellers, so I could take a red eye to Virginia. I barely got there in time for the funeral. Well, I'd been working so much and living out of a suitcase that I didn't have a dress for the funeral. Well, Genevieve heard and said, I got you. And the day I was about to fly out, she'd left me five black dresses in my trailer with shoes and jackets, so I could have something to wear for my aunt's funeral. Um, this is uh, it's October now. I know they were filming uh, Fellow Travellers last October, November. So this, this must have been a year back. And this obviously stuck with Caitlin enough that she insisted that uh, this goes somewhere in the, the interview. So during the course of the interview, you're going to see uh, Genevieve, in her own words, explain her process, talk about leadership, uh, how she works with her team. Uh, but it's very rare with these interviews that we get an insight into someone's uh, person from somebody else. So I'm really pleased. Thank you, Caitlin, for sharing that with me. And now on with the interview. Hello Leapers, this is Matt at the Quantum Leap Podcast and I'm really excited today because I have with me here the costume designer for Quantum Leap, it's Genevieve Terrell. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's fun to talk about the thing that we do day in and day out now that we're hopefully post-strike. Yeah, hopefully back soon. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about what you do because I, I'll be honest, I, I don't know much about how costume design works. No, I, I don't know anything about how costume design works. So I'm really interested to hear about the process, really interested to hear about your contribution. And a show like Quantum Leap, uh, the, the costumes are probably up there with the sets as one of the main things that 
sell how unique this show is. So um, loads of cool, loads of cool stuff to talk about. Yeah, thank uh, you for sure recognizing that. Yeah, thank you. I think a lot of people do. So let's start off talking about yourself before we get on to, to quantum. You've okay. you've been in the business since I think about ninety four. Can you mm-hmm. tell me how you how you got started? What were some of your earliest experiences in the industry? Sure. I was going to school to be a fashion designer and then I moved to Los Angeles to continue studying and started working at Fred Siegel, which is a very uh was a very hipster kind of place to be in the nineties and previously. And um met all kinds of stylists and costume designers and realized after they would call me and ask me to pull things for them that I loved film and I loved the narrative word and I loved, you know, every facet of it. I thought, why did I never think of this before? And, (laughs) and so I changed my direction to become a costume designer. And I told basically everybody that would come through those doors that I would be an intern or a PA or whatever they needed me to be. And, uh, a number of people who did, um, uh, co- commercials and music videos took me up on it. And then everything that was low budget that they didn't want to do, I did. So I was fortunate enough to do, um, the Counting Crows and a bunch of other musical acts that I then stayed with for a number of years. Nice. Yeah. And, um, and through my commercial contacts, one of them was Nicole Lelogia, who was one of the producers of Swingers. So then she brought me in to meet um, John Favreau and Doug Lyman, and and I designed Swingers, and then I had a movie career. So it kind of just took off from there. That and Swingers is such a cool place to start. I gather you were also in Swingers as well. I've never <laughs> spotted you, but I, in, it's, it's so I, silly. I noticed your credit. It's so I, I yeah. know, and I'm always looking. Whenever I see that on IMDb, I, I have to think about it a couple times. I'm literally like they're talking about hot girls at a party, <laughs> and I walk through the frame, and that's that's. But literally, no acting was right. involved, and somehow I am credited for that. Hey, more strings to your bow, and <laughs> thank you for the tip. Because now we can go back and, and find uh, and, and try and spot you. Yeah. Um, so, so swingers, big start. What what happened next? Um, I know we, we've got twenty years to cover in a, a few short minutes. So, uh, All right, let me encapsulate what, what happened it. over that time? Twenty years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I then became, you know, very much the niche of dressing hip guys and creating some hierarchy of cool within, you know, male fashion in film. And I did uh, a number of um, independent films in the 90s. It was sort of, you know, back to back to back uh, indie films. And certainly that was the heyday for making indies. And uh, then, you know, that parlayed itself into making um, bigger budget movies and meeting different people um, at Disney in particular, which seems like a kind of an odd twist but um <clears throat> i was hired to design some movies over there and i worked with uh, andy fickman a great deal this director who i did maybe four or five five movies with um and a lot of you know things in between that certainly but i didn't i, I then moved exclusively into film and didn't do really do that many commercials or music videos anymore and then from film i started adding in tv when i I was doing pilot pilots, but not doing the series. And then I did Entourage. So I did the first season of Entourage. 
basically the pilot in the first season. And, um, and then I left, I had a child and then I, I came, I came back with designing the movie Dukes of Hazard, and then went back and forth between TV and TV and film for the next, however many years that has been. So, and, oh, wait, wait, a lot of things in, in between there. I, I, I'm going to a thing for Freaky Friday tonight because I designed Freaky Friday. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, and, you're, and you're going to a thing for that tonight? Yeah, there's a screening that uh, uh, a bunch of the crew uh, has decided to all go to. And, and so we're all getting together, <laughs> which is a, a first. We haven't, you know, done that ever since uh, since making oh, the movie. So that's it'll be, fun. be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that was uh, that that film would have been a lot of fun to to work on as well. It was one of the absolute funnest movies. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, as mm. everyone now knows, the whole world really is quite aware of what an amazing force of nature she is. Yes. Uh, yes. At the time, I was just, you know, just so it was the first time I'd worked with her and I was wowed beyond, you know, and um, the Lindsay Lohan of it all, it was before she kind of dropped off the other side for a while. And, um, and we just had a great time making it. It was, you know, we knew it was going to be something really special. Speaking of something really special, that, <laughs> in a clunky way, segues us into Quantum Leap. Um, can you tell me uh, how you got how you got involved in in this relaunch? Because you've you've been with uh, the new show since the start, right? right. Um, I was interviewed for it, and um, I the only not the only, but one of uh, a primary. Um, amount of things I had done prior to this show that were period was a giant pilot for ABC called Triangle that didn't get picked up. But I had so many period costumes in that. So I was able to put together boards to show the um, producers and so forth for the interview. And also um, I had done um, the Evil Knievel biopic actually never got never got shot but i have beautiful fitting photos <laughs> so you know it was it was nice to take everything that had come before that hadn't been seen and and present it that way and so um i met with um the producers maybe 2 weeks before we started shooting and had a very very short time to prep it and turn around that first episode for 101 so and then, you know, it's kind of just off to the races because, you know, it's, it's every week, as you know, because you do watch our show. Um, it's, it's a period movie. It's an action movie. And so the process is, um, has to be intrinsic and also, um, just non, you know, like a, you can't, you can, you can never just stop and just hang out and have a nice after, quiet afternoon. <laughs> it's never, it's never <laughs> going to be that show. <laughs> it's always going to be, you know, researching and um, the process starts again and again, rinse, repeat. Can you, can you tell me a bit about that sure. process besides the fact that it's incredibly packed, I'm sure, um, having to do all this new work again and again what does that look like from start to finish well fortunately you know the writers are great and they we're never waiting on a script which is a huge huge bonus for any show but particularly this show so um while we're still shooting the the show that has been prepped so say you know 201 um is on its second day of shooting i have already read the next episode 
and I'm already deep into um, the internet, basically. To I use um, I use Shot Deck, um, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's created by a cinematographer, and it has uh, tons and tons of stills from films that would not otherwise be found on the internet. So it's a very great resource. So I pull those for my the costume boards that I'm creating for the for the upcoming episode, and then we also use occasionally, not always. There are a few other websites that have um, that have you know uh, Sears catalogs from the all the years and JC Penney catalogs and things like that. So Brilliant. those are a wonderful resource, and that's another online resource. There are a couple different costume houses that have amazing amounts of like Life magazine and Time magazine bound together. So they so they truly have a library, and that's I've gone in there and sat there with Genius Scan and scanned you know pages and pages and pages of things for any given episode because it's nice to see what people are wearing, not just in the photo shoots, the spreads in the magazines, but also in the, the ads that they're showing in the magazines, which you don't always find online. So there's that. And, um, and then what we do is, excuse me, we, um, so while I'm making the complete set of costume boards, um, I then pull out also the, the five, generally the five people who are my HQ principals. You know, whether it's Magic, Ian, Jen, Addison, um, all of the rest, sometimes Tom, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. I pull all of their costumes out and create a board of, of their looks too. So that goes into that equation. I also create boards for what the background will wear. So that's a lot of, you know, additional research. So my initial boards for any given episode are maybe 20 pages. And then, you know, we cull it down. And once I start having fittings, then they, you know, those actual pieces that are chosen go onto the boards. The idea of them is swapped out for the actual look on the boards. But we also, one of the major challenges of this particular costume department is that um, with Ben, you know, when he's leaping into the host, we then need to find um, a period vintage costume that you know, out at a costume house or somewhere, somewhere out there, that is a good representation of what we would like for him to be in for the actual episode. And then we go and we source, we try that on him so we can use it as a pattern. We source the fabrics and the trim, the buttons, the zippers, the everything. So they're period correct. The shoes, hats, whatever else, the belts, you know, so that it's all period correct. And so then we custom make Ben and his host and, and the stud yeah, presumably dub- different sizes so yeah and the stud yeah. double and sometimes the driving double so we'll have maybe 5 to 7 of any given costume multiples so we always have to find bolts of fabric that have at least 15 yards or mm. you know something like that um so that we can create this you know illusion that it's just a a period action movie and it's just uh, it's amazing how it just all comes together so um that's you know the hugest thing and also ray is generally in every scene so oftentimes that we get him for like half an hour before he goes to adr on any given day like that's his day off is he goes to adr and comes to us for fitting his one day off so uh we're very um fortunate because he is such a great and generous human with his time and humor and easygoing spirit. He's, he's really pretty wonderful. 
he seems it. Yeah, good. yeah. I mean, I, the whole cast is. I, I have um, uh, such a fondness for each of them, and they're all so incredibly different in in uh, in, in mm. the show, but in real life too. So it's it's been a really wonderful experience. And um, just just to your point about because I, I hadn't really considered just how many doubles of each of the the costumes you must have to have. I guess something like Leap Die Repeat, where <laughs> He's in five, six different hosts throughout that episode. Yeah. That, that was must have been especially challenging in that respect. Absolutely, it was actually my one of my favorite episodes to design. I mm-hmm. think it's you know I think Margarita Matthews is one of the most clever, interesting writers, and certainly um, anything she devises has a really interesting twist to it. And to create you know five of the same costume for Ben and the person you know the five different hosts in the elevator, right, um, was was a huge challenge. But but because it was in the spirit of it being so such a well-crafted script and such a fun idea that, you know, we were all, we just loved it. It was it was one of our, our favorites. It's funny you should mention uh, Raymond's uh, good humor. I, we were interviewing Deborah Pratt a few days back and uh, she said to say hi. <laughs> and she also said to remind you that the fans want to see Raymond suffer in heels. <laughs> and uh, she, th- she thinks you've been very kind to him I, so far. I have been. So- I know she wanted me to put him in some stilettos uh, when he was this light attendant. And, you know, it's not that I can't <laughs> do, I, I could probably get Ray to do, do that. For sure. However, the amount of action that's required of Ray so often would be torturous. And, and, you know, I just feel like, um, I'm just not that much of a torturer. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you've, you've watched the show enough to know that there's very, there's not many wides. We could cheat it, you know, just full length wide shots. But, you know, on the plane, there were because of the, uh, you know, the way the just the shape of an airplane to shoot in so but yeah no i guess i have been Uh, yeah anytime you want to torture ray just know you've got you've got fandom behind you we we love ray but at the same time yeah ray he's playing the leaper he's designed to suffer that's what scott had to do it as well right i do have to say too about ray that he is um a really great leader amongst crew and cast on set and he is always wanting to know and looking out for all of us. He's, he's very imbued in being in a leadership role. It's, you know, by choice. So it's, it's a wonderful yes. thing to, to watch. Yeah. I think it's an important part of the success of yeah. the show. Um, it, it shows to those of us watching closely. Um, and it shows in the interviews that we run as well, the, the, the interplay between all the actors and the, the production personnel. Yeah, I've designed shows where that was, the the case was the opposite so <laughs> i speak with great authority when i say yes. it makes a big di- it makes a big difference i can imagine yeah yeah so it's interesting you mentioned about uh doing that obviously the kind of the the hard research on the eras but also then choosing outfits for the project is there any kind of link between the two? Are you trying to re- reflect in some some subtle way that's going over my head? Uh, what's what's going on in the league? What's going on in the project? How how do you how do you tie those together, if at all? Yes. Well, what I like to do at the outset of every episode when I'm um, 
I've done the research for the period. So I have a pretty broad overview of what the palette will be for, you know, say 1970s. And, um, and so then I go and I look in my closets for my lead actors in the HQ project and pull out something that's completely contrary to that in both color and also tone. There are times when, you know, with um, Addison being the hologram, she needs to be in the period scene, uh, you know, within her, her hologram. And so I don't want her to be wearing anything that looks like the period we're in or also in mm-hmm. the color scheme of the period. So it's something that has to be complementary in both the period scenes and the scenes at HQ. Interesting. That that also explains something that I think a few of us have wondered, which is in the original series, for kind of half of that reason, Al always used to be dressed in outrageous outfits so that he stuck out against whatever was going on in the period. And we, I think a few of us have had this question, well, why not have Addison in, in those kind of outrageous outfits? But of course, there's that, that other half she's got to fit in at the project as well. Right. Yeah. And she's such a wonderful actress and, and so malleable mm. as far as, um, you know, she comes from, you know, the world of the military and she's, she's, um, she she comes into a fitting and she will change into 50 things in 50 minutes. She's amazing, you know, and she, <laughs> and she looks great at everything. And, and it's wonderful to dress her. She's, she's not inhibited at all about, you know, anything that I might put her in. Um, so I, I mean, we could do something crazy, but you know, it's not really the tone, is it? Yeah. So, well, you got her into a Fermi suit this season, which was uh, a lovely throwback to the original series. So we're, we're happy with that. Nice. Yeah. Um, you mentioned also, and I just want to go back to it quickly, uh, about the background. And I, I imagine on, on a, a, a quote unquote normal production, you'd spend a lot of time on the foreground artists and then you'd be able to pull stuff out of some kind of stock or storage for, the background, but when you've got, and I'm, I'm thinking of things like fellow travelers where you've got dozens of extras yeah. dressed in seventies outfits. What, what do you do with that? How, how direct are you in, in, how directly involved are you in creating the look there? Well, what we do is um, I have a great team that heads up the background um, end of this, this show. And um, part of the secret sauce of what makes this come together as quickly as it does is knowing which costume house to go to that specializes in in something like 70s, like you're saying. So, for example, on that episode, we um, had all of our fittings out at um, um, Eastern Costume. And and so the primary amount of stock was pulled at Eastern and everybody came through there. And then we, you know, we shoot two different looks for each background and artist. And then we... Um, you know, upload it and create boards for them as well. So that we have, you know, we've already established that what the color palette should be, what the look is. And hopefully, you know, I mean, obviously during COVID times, there was a lot of attrition that people would be fit and then wouldn't show or, you know, so there was issues in that way. But I think we created, you know, maybe a 20% buffer or a 30% buffer to accommodate that. Um. But yeah, so a lot of times we're at either Eastern, United, or Warner Brothers costumes. Those are our top three primary places that we, you know, choose. We know that 
the Warner Brothers will have like the best 80 stock or, you know, um, we know that United has the best 30s, 40s, basically 50s, too. And a lot of times, strangely, at United Costume, we have United American. We there have been enough big movies that have come through there and have stock there now that there can sometimes be um, multiples of shirts or different things that have been custom made by films past. So they're in the period section that they're appropriate for, but we're, so we, we, we scroll them away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when Mrs. Maisel wrapped, they, they sent everything to Western costume, Western costume bought a lot of it. And we did, we went in and we saw two racks of men's shirts and we were like, Oh, we need these. We're just keeping them. We know we're going to need them, you know, and that prevents us from having to custom make shirts. So, it, you know, it's the little things that save time that we really value so much, you know. I can imagine on something that scale. Yeah. Is there anything particular that, that we should look out for? Is is there like a, a particularly famous character in a famous film that if we look closely in the background of an episode? Oh, you know, it's interesting. An unintentional Easter egg, perhaps? Oh, yeah. You know, if I think of one in particular, a lot, oftentimes if I find something in a costume house, especially at Western, you're going to get that mm-hmm. real rich film history. And a lot of the things from that are period were custom made. And they'll have um, a patch sewn into the neck of the of the shirt or the suit jacket or right. something. And it says Western costume. And then it'll say the actor's initials like R. Reagan or somebody, you know, and it'll say the year <laughs> the year it was made. And so, you, you know, you start, yeah. whatever it is, I always take a picture of um, you know, those, those little, uh, patches amazing. when I see them. Cause it is such a cool, you know, I, I love that costume history part of it that you just, you know, climbing up into, we call it the stacks when you climb up the ladder into the racks of costumes. Yeah. Say we call over to Angels and Bermans every once in a while, which is your local costume department and they have an amazing stock too. But, um, but only if we can't find something, which hasn't happened too, too often. Yeah, I, I had no idea that there was uh, there was so much out there and so much so much rich history yeah. to pull from. Yeah, that's that's must make it so exciting. It does. I mean, you know, even uh, you can pull medieval costumes that were custom made for something from the forties, and you're thinking, oh, what what do you think this was? And sometimes, you know, again, going back to shot deck, you can and using sort of IMDb too to look at like what movies were made in that particular year. You can figure out what those costumes were made for originally, which is, yeah, it's fun. It's a bonus. Uh, I'm, I'm super interested in the research part. And you, you mentioned at the start about looking at specific eras. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, do you have a different process for when you're looking at specific cultures? And I'm, I'm particularly thinking of family style here as an example. Oh, yeah. Some beautiful costumes in that. Thank you. Um, it is there well thank you for bringing it to the screen because it just it made that episode come to life oh, and there's other you. there's other examples of it peppered throughout the show but i think that's that's a particularly interesting one do you research that in a different way or is that the same kind of process uh that in particular i feel like i went with i i don't feel like i researched it culturally as much until i started this is not to my credit, <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, I did a bit, yes. But um, 
when some of the actors came in, some of the women in particular, they were teaching me different things about when you wear the scarves tied a certain way or on your head or, you know, and that it, you know, it spoke of both whether you were from the north or south of India, whether you were from, um, you know, a religious, a specific religious background, you know, so, so I was learning a lot on the job as well. And, you know, uh, again, there's, you know, I, there's not a master class available yet online that I've seen that can teach you how to, re- you know, that specific, um, for costuming. But, um, uh, that was a lot of fun. What I felt like was the lead thing that I chose to do on that particular episode was choose colors that I felt were the colors of the spices that they were cooking with. You know, it was, Oh, nice. Yeah, like the paprikas and the cumins and the, yeah. you know, yeah. so it's the deep pap- paprika color and the, the orangey tones and the purples and all the different things that I felt were um, part of that like lavish feast of visuals that um, Deborah Pratt was um, set out to portray in that particular scenes and episodes. Yeah. yeah. You make you make the whole process sound like it's a lot of work but you also make it sound so so smooth i'm i'm interested in knowing what what kind of real challenges have you come across what would you say maybe over the first two seasons up to where you can talk about has been your your biggest sticking point i mean i won't lie we 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 gun hard all day you know we really yeah um i have two shoppers that work you know at least 12 hours a day and they're out running around getting, you know, um, I think that I have such a great crew that we, we try to infuse laughter in a lot of things. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I think that that keeps the wheels moving uh, in a much nicer way. And, and yeah, there are days when I, uh, you know, I don't, it's not that I would feel defeated, but I'm like, you know, just amazed at that that the mountain still is there to climb. Let's say that, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, yeah. It, okay. it's big. And then it, and it just, you know, you can take it home with you and it just rolls over the next day. But I try to be in early with everybody and knock it out and try to mm-hmm. have a little bit of evening left where people can be with their families and, you know, and my, me too, so that we have some balance. I feel like I'm getting a management masterclass from you now. Let, let's, let's flip that. Let's flip that the other way. What's, what's been your favorite era to visit? What's been the most fun? I love, that you've had? I love the thirties and primarily yeah. I love the 20s, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, I just mm. find the costume, the era is so fascinating to me. And, and I, if this tells you anything about me, I, one of my favorite TV shows is Babylon Berlin, which is the Weimar Republic era of Germany. Okay. And, just it's just uh, something that just draws me to that era with the colors and the silhouettes of costumes and the hats, the cloches and the different um, accessories that seemed, so, you know, somewhat flamboyant, even if there wasn't any money to be had, you know, that people would try to like, you know, have hosiery, even if they didn't really have money. So, you know, just just um, some of my favorite films, too, are, are set in that era. Are there, because we're, we're only really, what, 20 something episodes into the whole series. Are there, are there any eras that the show hasn't visited yet that you're hoping will come up at some point? 
Oh, I also like the 60s. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, Good. I can right imagine that's a fun one to design. Yeah, the early yeah. 60s. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we've covered, I mean, somewhere between there was 1690 upcoming and 1890 in season, 1892 in season one. Um, so somewhere in between there, we haven't covered any of that. And somewhere between 1892 and 19... 20 we haven't so it'd be interesting to do maybe yeah. a turn of the century it'd be really the teens would be really interesting yeah. and not the teens of the odds the teens of the 19s <laughs> yes. right yeah <laughs> that'd be a lot of fun and the costumes are so you know i i like using um different painters as inspiration when we go back into mm. that those the earlier periods so we talked earlier about the uh, the project side. Uh, I'm, I'm really conscious we didn't talk about Ian, uh, and Ian has some, some fabulous outfits. Is, is that, um, do you work with Mason particularly on that look? Absolutely. We have epic fittings. I mean, truly <laughs> two hours go by and we're laughing and chatting and playing music. And, um, yeah. I feel like we've had a wonderful evolution since the first time we met. Mm -hmm. And it has definitely shifted and evolved. And there's, I, I find that somewhere between Ian and Jen, it, my muse resides. If I could dress myself like either of them, mm -hmm. I, I see, I see the way I'd want to dress in both of them is what I'm try, trying to say. So a lot of times, you know, I can put things on Mason that like they're my paper doll <laughs> and it just, <laughs> Oh wow. That looks amazing. Um, I love mixing, you know, there's a lot of patterns. There's a lot of color. There's a lot of bold choices. There's, you know, funky shoes. There's really fun jewelry. Um, so it's, it's always an ongoing process. And certainly when I dressed um, Alice Kremelberg too, when she plays Rachel, uh, we did do a thing that was, how Rachel was part and parcel to, so that they had some connectivity in, in what they would wear. So that was a lot of fun. And Jen, uh, you know, Nanrisa looks beautiful and just about anything. She's, she's another one where I can put her in oversized um, blazers and felt them and wear, you know, <laughs> mini dresses and over the knee boots and things that are funky and real street style is, is her vibe. So she's always fun. And certainly the 2018 flashbacks in, in episode 201. Oh my God. How have we not even talked about that? Yes. Those flashbacks were so much fun for Jen and Ian particularly. Yeah, we made that knockoff of, well, we, we got it cleared, of course, but, um, the tribe called Quest low end theory t-shirt and, uh, you know, things like that that spoke to her heart and my heart. She, she was, she was in love. She, yeah. she was like, may I please have one of these? So. Oh, that does that doesn't happen every and, day. No, and you mentioned that uh, evolution. I've noticed um, Magic's outfits. He, his um, early on the first few episodes he was in, it was very much slightly different color of the same suit mm -hmm. week after week. But he seems to have been going through a bit of a change over time as well. Yeah, well, um, we we definitely um, for season two we've we've given him more casual elements. He was much more of a suit yeah. guy. Nice. And a blazer guy mm -hmm. in season one, and you know we really wanted to convey that he you know went away and came back and and um, you know is having that relationship and involved in a relationship, and um, 
and just has a, you know, I mean, he, he, every time he's on screen, you see the warmth of a father figure. And I feel like some of these knits that we have him in, uh, are, you know, really convey that warmth even more. Now you're making me rethink what I'm putting him in in 209. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with the suits, but I think it really does, it sells the, the three years of past. Yeah. Um, you, you can see he's a slightly different person from, from the costume. And with the other actors, sometimes it's a bit more about the, the portrayal and the writing. But, uh, with magic, you can definitely, you, you can see it when he steps on screen. Yeah. Thank but, you. Yeah, we tried to give everybody a bit of a twist, but not something, hmm. uh, you know, not something that, uh, was too hmm. character altering. Yeah. Yeah, it's three years. Correct. Um, and speaking of three years, this has been such a good conversation. I feel like I could carry on talking to you for three years. Mm. Um, I, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Um, Genevieve, I, I hope I can invite you back on the show uh, at some later point, um, maybe when the series comes to an end, uh, which hopefully is many years from now. Mm. And we've got a lot more to look back on, a lot more to unpack, because I think there's... Uh, there's so much more we could talk about. But um, for now, I'm really conscious of your time. And I think you've been uh, very generous sharing so much about your process. I, I've learned a lot. I know the listeners will have done as well. So great. just wanted to say a great big thank you. And, um, yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you from, from myself and also the Costume Design Guild. You know, anytime uh, we're asked to talk about our craft and our love of it and explain the process, we are happy to. So thank you for shining a light on it. All right. You weren't lying. She's a delight. Yes. <laughs> She's a delightful, delightful person. Yeah. And so charming and informative. And yeah, I, I could have spoke to her for a lot longer. And you heard I've invited her back. She said, yes, it's good. We'll, we'll get her back when there's more costumes to talk about. Yeah, I mean, because we do have some different types of leaps coming up. That's one thing that I like that you guys touched upon, because every costume is period specific, even though they're very subtle. So it's not like we have been like the witch trial one that's coming up. It looks like that's much more of a quote costume heavy episode. But <laughs> yes, Jen's got to think about all of the costumes that are going on, no matter where they are. And the fact that they don't stand out like Jean-Pierre's Al outfit stood out. Right, exactly. It's such a subtle thing that if you notice it too much, she's not doing her job right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad that you were able to address that with her and that you could explore it a little bit. I always find that stuff fascinating. And um, yeah. I think we have a pretty good track record of talking to costume designers for Quantum Leap on this show. So, <laughs> well, yeah, 100% of them. There we go. Yeah, 100%. We, we're, 100, we're, we're batting one for one on that or two for two, I guess. So thank you, Jen, for being on the show. We look forward to having you back and talking about, uh, you know, deeper dives into all of this stuff. And I'm sure you're going to make an entire chapter in Matt's book. So yes, you got that to look forward to as well. So. All right. Again, since I am ignorant of all of the interview stuff around here, sometimes I show up. That's about it. And then I watch <laughs> them and listen to them. Uh, you and Albie are on fire. Tell me how, how this next interview that we're going to hear came about. Yeah. So uh, actually, due credit to Dean Georgiaris for this one. Dean was talking to Sam uh, a week or so back and was the one that proposed a, uh, a four-person interview, myself and Sam and uh, Dean and Christy. 
And unfortunately, at the last moment, Dean couldn't make it. Uh, he had a personal engagement. But uh, in all honesty, as much as I love talking to Dean, that gave us the opportunity to really focus on um, finding out more about Christy. So, yeah, this came about through through Dean talking to Sam, Sam reaching out to me and saying, hey, what do you think? And we went for it. So it's a new and interesting way of doing it. And uh, yeah, Christy Lowry. Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel. I am your host, Sam, and this week we have something very special, a collaboration, and I get to introduce my co-host for the episode. Yes, it's Matt Dale from the Quantum Leap podcast, and uh, Sam and I have with us Christy Lowry, the new supervising producer on Quantum Leap and writer of tonight's episode, The Lonely Hearts Club. Uh, Christy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm uh, very excited to be here. Well, we are right, we're really excited to have you. Yeah, this should be a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed the episode. I thought that there were some incredible moments, um, you know, for for the characters, and I really enjoyed the way that the the leap paired up with a lot of the the character development. And it was done in a very unique way because uh, the leap itself might not have been that action packed, you know, hyper dramatic leap that we we're used to. Um, and I think it was incredibly successful uh, the the way that it was, though. Um, and there are lots of questions, I'm sure that that Matt mm-hmm. and I have. Um, But one of the first things I will throw out there um, is that this episode has an excellent guest star in Tim Matheson. Tim is just phenomenal. Um, Now, obviously, I know when when breaking the episodes and writing the episodes, you don't often know who's going to be cast in the show. Um, So I'm curious, was there any inkling that that Tim would be your Neil Russell? And if not, at any point, did you maybe tailor anything towards him or were things written in a certain way? Because obviously he's someone who has a lot of experience, you know, carries a lot with him. So I was curious as to what the process is uh, when you have a guest cast member like this. Uh, No, we did not know uh, we would be getting Tim. I think early on we knew we wanted to get someone, you know, a name because it is such, I think, a good character role for anyone to step into. Um, I'm sure I'm allowed to say this, but early on we were kind of like our prototype was like Ted Danson was like the name we threw. I think even for a while Mm. we called the character Ted. (laughs) Um, I think we tried, you know, I'm sure we went down that road, uh, which is far above my pay grade, but um, (laughs) whenever I think we were in slightly in the prep, but like I had heard Tim, which I think we were all very excited for, you know, animal house. Obviously Tim has been doing this for a very long time. Great resume. And, um, and I will just say working with him on set, he is just like a lovely human being. And as long as he's been doing this was just like excited. Like it felt like it was like his first like thing he ever did, which is like just cool for, I think not only me, but all the actors to like, Oh, here's this guy who has been doing this so long. And he's still just as like excited to be, acting um yeah so mm-hmm. tim ended up being very lovely such a great actor such a great human being so um i can't see anyone else uh playing that neil role now so i'm glad that's who we got tim really lights up the screen with a lot of what in some people's hands could be almost cheesy ott rom-com dialogue it's very <laughs> it's very big broad strokes yeah i'm really interested going back a step before the the casting what kind of inspiration you had was this always designed to be a for me going into the christmas season as we are 
this feels like the season for rom-coms. And <laughs> was was this the kind of what you were going up against, uh, trying to fit into the, the Hallmark movie style? Yeah, I think early on, and I admittedly have not seen this movie, but I know Dean threw around my favorite year, or when we were just talking about conceptually, mm-hmm. and even like, um, and this this is not necessarily tonally, like get him to the Greek, but like you have to, like your character has to get someone who is, you know, of prominence to like, who's obviously not listening to you to like get them to a place was kind of like early on where it started. And then I think just naturally, uh, yeah. Cause we even called it a rom-com. I think at very times when we were shooting it, everyone felt that very much, which yeah, I guess looking back at, at other episodes, we don't rom comedy, of course, but usually it's like action and this and that. And this is kind of felt, I think we even leaned into those moments sometimes and even those tropes of like, uh, rom-com moments so I think pretty early on we knew like it was going to be a little bit lighter tone um, and lean into just like the romance of getting the woman you love back and the, the comedy of that and then of course the fact that this character was um, you know used to be a sitcom actor was in the comedy world like it felt like you had to like lean into like that charm and just like being funny and, and that kind of thing so um, I think we talked around that we kind of knew we were swimming in those waters pretty early on yeah, it's, you know, and one of the things that I think works so well is that there's a wonderful balance. And I and I find this quite often, frankly, with uh, the Quantum Leap Revival and, and in the classic series as well, is there's such a wonderful balance between, you know, the the dramatic moments and these, you know, these incredibly grounded, or excuse me, these these incredibly, you know, you've got the balance between the grounded moments and some of these incredibly over the top moments or what could be over the top. And it, and it works so well. And I'm curious when you're, when you're approaching an episode, you know, from a writer's perspective, um, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you kind of balance the honesty with some of that sort of, you know, a little bit more oddball, uh, comedy as well? Um, you know, obviously we do things like, you know, tonal paths and as far as like, you know, the writers, I think, and I'm coming in new to the show, but everyone has been there since season one. Like we kind of know what is, you know, like this is either a bridge too far in either like in any genre we do like, Oh, you know, we're not this scary or we're not this, you know, like we don't kill people. So we all kind of know like what that line is. And I think for this specific episode, um, what's great about it is like, we have like the character arc and specifically, you know, Ben's character, but also in this, um, Neil, uh, who Tim's playing just a, um, you know, where their arc starts out. So it kind of starts out. If you notice the episode is very light, like you are in a rob com, but as you get further into the episode, it starts to get heavier and more emotional. And by the end, you know, there are tears and there are like moments where you're like, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll get into that. Like, you know, breakups and this can happen. So it, it, it kind of helped, uh, that kind of helped guide us. Like where has been at emotionally in the episode and also where is Neil at in terms of like the wedding and all that. So I think that kind of gave us a guiding light to follow. Like we started out light and then definitely got into like heavier, almost drama territory by Mm -hmm. the end, which was very helpful to just keep us in the right direction. I'd like to understand, because uh, I know a lot of our listeners like to understand the process of, of what happens uh, behind the scenes. You, you mentioned a, a tonal pass, was that? It, what what does that really mean in terms of uh, what, what does that look like? Yeah, I won't say we always do them with every episode, but I think sometimes when we're breaking in the room, even when we pitch ideas, sometimes, you know, someone will pitch something that's a great idea, but it, we always have to question again, 
is that our show? Is that for our audience? Is that something we can even do on NBC? You know, um, cause like, you know, we can say we want to do, um, you know, a scary episode or something that is like thrilling in action, but we're not going to go into like rated R territory or we're not going again, headshots and cussing and like hard R <laughs> stuff. So we, you just know, like you can pitch something that is like of that. And then you have to be real realistic about what your show does best, you know, who your actors are, what you're even allowed to do, and then just kind of pull back or amp it up, you know, up to the edge of the line of what you're allowed to do. So when I say tonal passage, again, if someone pitches like, and then someone comes in with the gun and kills everybody, I'd be like, okay, now what's the quantum leap version of that? What does Ben do that's, you know, that's smart? And what's he can do a clever thing because that's our show. So I guess when I say tonal passage, I mean, everyone is pretty good about checking uh, our pitches up front. And then when it lays out on the page, like, okay, we you know, that feels arch for the villain to do, or this is a little too rom-commy for this moment, or it gets a little silly and broad. I think we just are always kind of keeping that mindful for like what the show, what its strengths are. That, yeah. I, I mean, I love, I love hearing about that. And it's fascinating to me the way that the the room in particular interacts and collaborates on the episodes. One of the things that's interesting, and, and Matt and I were talking about this beforehand, because we're both intrigued by this, is that even though we're aware that most of this takes place, you know, most of the writer's room is, is virtual over Zoom, um, that a lot of the writers, in fact, I think all of them with one exception are in the LA area. And that exception is you, you're in Arkansas. So we're curious, how does that, how does that work? <laughs> well, I will say I lived in LA for 10 years. Um, I'm originally from Arkansas, but I did live in LA for the previous 10 years, you know, riding and being in person in a room. And then, you know, the pandemic has kind of changed, um, you know, obviously not only our industry, but you know, the world in some sense. And so, um, that allowed me, I moved back home uh, a year ago. So uh, I will say, and I'm maybe down the road, you guys will get to talk to her. We do have another writer who is um, long distance and even longer distance. Like she's in Europe. Um, she's from the LA area, but currently uh, is in Europe. So uh, I guess luckily I'm not the only one, but um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I've done virtual rooms. Again, we've all been in LA and in a virtual room because of the pandemic. So for me, it's like, there's a time difference. But I feel like I was like, we might as well all be in uh, LA, I guess, kind of thing. Um, so there's really, I guess, no difference for me. But what I, what is great about uh, what I like about the virtual room, obviously, is it allows you to get writers who are not necessarily based in LA, because you know, people, you know, New York, Europe, you know, everywhere, um, it kind of just opens up, especially a show like Quantum Leap, where you're doing different time periods, different areas, like to be able to get a rider from, you know, the South, the East Coast, another country, like I think that opens you up to just um, diversity in your room that is different than um, what you typically think of when you think of diversity. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I mean, I, I love that. And, and you know, your experience too. speaking of, of your past, like this isn't your first time travel show either because you worked on oh, 12 Monkeys. You, oh, you've done your research. Yes, I did. Um, 12 Monkeys was my very first. I was a staff writer. It was my very first uh, show. I did season three and four there. Have you guys watched 12 Monkeys? I'm curious. A little bit. I, I honestly okay. I watched a little bit of the first season, um, but okay. I'm not seeing the rest. I, and this is not a 12 Monkey show, but I highly recommend anyone who uh, is into time travel because uh, to me, what's different about 12 Monkeys is serialized time travel. So if you like to mm -hmm. like, you know, 
wind yourself in literal knots and circles and time loops. Um, it gets, it gets pretty crazy what we are doing there, but yeah, this is, um, I was like, kind of excited to return to time travel because it just allows you to do like, who doesn't love to jump to a different time period and, and do a different thing. So, um, I was very excited to return to, uh, that sandbox, I guess you could say. Yeah. So that, that really interests me then. So you, you, you like the, you, the, the opportunity to jump to different time periods. So for you, was the first thought rom-com or was the first thought turn of the century, turn of the millennium LA? What, what was, what was the driver behind this episode? I think I'm trying to think back to early conversations. Um, again, the first thing that pops out my mind is Dean saying my favorite year. So again, if, um, I don't know where that was coming from. I feel like we were thinking, um, we knew that we wanted to do in terms of Ben and Addison, like their uh, relationship story, something big here. And so um, I don't know that we were thinking rom-com, but I feel like the rom-com, like the year wasn't a huge thing. Like I, I think yeah. we went 2000 just because thinking about like, um, just like there's of course there's big stars now, but you had like, that felt like a time where you had like giant mega, like, um, iconic stars. So just like 2000, we could do something somewhat recent, but also still 20 years ago, but it was like of a time of era when we were looking at pictures of like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and like just the things they would wear. It just felt very like you could look at that time period and go, Oh, that was late nineties, early two thousands. Like it's pretty, you know, uh, identifiable. So I felt like we were rom-com or in that tone first. And then, you know, we, I think we just picked the year 2000 just, like it felt like a good even number. So, um, but I don't think we were ever thinking like an eighties, nineties, or even, you know, um, more modern version that I can recall. Yeah. Sorry. I notice I keep saying rom-com and, and you keep seeming to try and divert away from that. So I guess you don't, uh, you don't feel, maybe you don't feel this is as rom-com-ish as, no, I mean no. it as a compliment. I love a good yeah. rom-com. No, <laughs> no, no. You know, I think part of that is um, if you would have told me, six months long enough well we've had the strike if you had told me a year ago i'd be writing any kind of rom-com episode i probably would have laughed in your face um, <laughs> so because it's just so, so when i think about i wrote a did i write a rom-com did i i don't know i'm like oh i guess i did so for me it's just more like typically not my um first go-to in terms of what i do but like i had a blast writing it so yeah i mean it, it is a rom-com right i guess that's probably just my own bias of like yeah the term maybe so it, it has all the, the the classic beats and this sort of big plot of this guy making a grand romantic gesture and then towards the end there's tears so yeah sure. to, to me that's to me that's a rom-com <laughs> that's fair that's fair <laughs> the the lovely thing though is is that like it, it definitely does not play too much into the convention because if it did you know like neil would get the girl and you know mm-hmm. and, and addison would you know and, and instead like it does the exact opposite um and and it's lovely you know with the end with with neil going to his daughter um but before before we get there um one of the things that I was thinking about is like uh, just to, just for a little further context for listeners, if they're not familiar, my favorite year was a movie from the eighties with Peter O'Toole, where he played this sort of aging, uh, you know, swashbuckling film star from the thirties and forties. And this comedy writer uh, gets to basically spend a week with him in order to try to get him to this comedy cavalcade of stars, 
TV show that they're doing. Uh, and, and so I can see the parallels there and, you know, and, and with Ben's journey with, with Neil. Um, but it, one of the things that I, that I really enjoy too about the nature of, of the story and, and just the nature of, of the, the, the time travel aspect is that there's, you know, there's these wonderful nods to the period, including I, I love me right off the bat after we kind of get the fake out with the leap in where we think we're in some sort of, you know, crazy heist is about to happen. Um, is, is, you know, we get this nice little nod to, to Quentin Tarantino where, you know, Neil makes the line about Quentin. And at that particular point in time, as you said, like, that was one of the things that Quentin Tarantino was kind of known for was bringing some of these actors back, you know, like, like a John Travolta or Robert Forrester, mm-hmm. or, you know, and, 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 and I think that it's, it, it really plays well into that as a, you know, aspect of the time period. Was there anything else about the time period that you felt was really interesting to explore because you don't necessarily get to do a lot of that over the course of the episode, but there are these little conventions, like even like the tonight show, for instance, that I feel like at that time, you know, we're, we're so much more, integral to the time period than they are, say, today, or even maybe, you know, 20, 30 years prior? I don't know if there's anything necessarily in terms of, um, like, what is it about 2000? I think, again, you know, now everything's so, like, digital, and you can watch, like, TV and movies on, you know, your phone, your computer, there's influencers, all that, but, like, that was of a time where, like, you know, again, the big names of, you know, Brad Pitt and uh, Tom Cruise, because we even talked about it's like, imagine being with Tom Cruise a day before he died. Like, that's kind of sometimes how we would talk, like, imagine the magnitude of, like, something like that. So just, I think part of it is just, like, of a time in which, like, stars were so big, uh, the Hollywood, like, Hollywood had this kind of, like, beam about it in a way probably now people, I think, look at Hollywood sometimes and they're like, eh, Hollywood. But, like, then it was like, you know, a shining beacon of like hope and this and that, and just trying to remember that time. Um, you know, and of course, like, you know, we had fun little, like even picking out wardrobe, like the planet Hollywood hat, <laughs> like, plant, yeah. like is planet Hollywood, even still a thing. Um, and small things like that. And you're like, Oh, even 20 years, things have like disappeared and went away. Um, so, you know, I will say this is, I think still the date, the new like episode to like doing 2000 is, I guess, the most modern thing we've done this season. So there isn't, I guess, visually some of the most like, you know, you know, you're in the 80s, 70s, 50s, 40s. It doesn't quite have that. But I think, uh, you know, it is of a time where we like I'm imagining most of our viewers like you remember the year 2000. You remember what it was like. You've been there. You're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that wardrobe. So I feel like it's weirdly nostalgic because you lived through that and like in the 40s like I wasn't around it's cool to see that stuff but like I couldn't tell you what that felt like but you can tell someone like what the 2000s felt like which I think is kind of cool um and I will say what what kind of helped us in thinking of like the big stars I think what's a little bit different about this episode you know usually Ben is kind of like um when he has his host and he has you know the person he's trying to help he's usually leading that in an active way and it's like well, who's the type of person that he would like kind of get off on a wayward path and like listen to every word and follow? It's like, it's a big movie star. It's like, again, imagine being with Tom Cruise. Well, if Tom Cruise says he wants to go break up a wedding, you're like, uh, yeah, Tom Cruise, I'm totally going to follow you as opposed to like Ben's supposed to be like, no, we need to go do this other mission. I need to help you. So I think having that kind of like time of when you would be starstruck really helped us buy into the narrative that like Ben would go kind of off mission and do this thing because of who Neil Russell is and his love for him, which I think uh, really helps sell that kind of that era and, and that story for us. 
Absolutely. One of the things, of course, about the episode that we mentioned earlier uh, that, that I think plays so well are the sort of the parallel love stories that we have going on. And I, I honestly, I hesitate to even call them love stories because I think there's something, there's a different name for them, but I don't know exactly what to, <laughs> what to call them. Um, and, and, you know, not only, of course, do you have Niels and, and of course, Ben and Addison, but we also get, um, a wonderful scene between Ian and Rachel. And we haven't seen Rachel for a while since the first season. What was it like to bring her back? And what was it like to explore, you know, not only, of course, the relationship as it's advanced between Ian and, and, and Rachel and kind of been rekindled um, in the past three years, the missing three years, but also to bring in these larger sort of plot arc elements with the the microchip and you know and and what could be going on with that there's a lot i mean there's a lot that going on in this episode it's it's very it's yeah. filled with a lot so i'm curious as to like playing with that element and, and, and introducing that bit um as well as bringing rachel back yeah. what was that like yeah i would say there's a pretty big or at least launching pad for a b story here that as you go on um, for season two, you'll see this is the kind, uh, the kind of the beginning. But um, yeah, the interesting thing I remember when we talked about bringing Rachel back was I don't believe we had seen her character since like one thirteen. I want to say. So there was yeah. this kind of like, and I think that was kind of left like, you don't know if um, her and Ian are still together or what that was. So it's like, how do we, okay, if we want to bring her back and say they're still dating, like how do you kind of fill in the gap of what's happened between those mm-hmm. 10 plus episodes um and then you know plot terms like what what is the role um she can fill and and is going to fill going forward so um but i also think it's nice to see you know a relationship that because the addison ben thing is such like a it's literally like hologram like they're they were in a relationship but like literally can't touch to see uh, two people be in a relationship who are actually both physically there and like go home to each other every night and have a history and all that just like um, weirdly feels like the most normal relationship in a sense. <laughs> One of them is not a hologram. Um, now, of course, you know, Addison and Tom, you know, which we didn't have last season. So there is that now, but um, I think it was, it was nice bringing her back. And like I said, not to get anything going forward, but um we will be seeing more of them and kind of what, how that relationship is strained by, you know, this ongoing chip issue that is, is being had. But um, I would say definitely like keep an eye on that story because it, it becomes important down the road. Nice. Cool. Looking forward to that. I'm, uh, thanks for the tease. <laughs> I'm interested. Sam kind of touched on it, but I just want to delve a little bit further. So you've got, um, yeah, for want of a better word, love stories. You've, you've got a, you've got Neil and Ben both in stories where they've made decisions about their relationship, and it's it, that's very clear. And then you've also sort of got that with the Ian and Rachel plot as well, where he's made that decision to keep a secret from her. So you've got three different storylines, two of which very much front and center, and then the Ian and Rachel one. This, this sort of a, a what came first piece. If if we weren't ready for the the chip piece to come out, do you think that scene would have played out differently in a different episode? The fact that it was the right time to bring the chip scene out was that mm. what caused that to be kind of a third strand of that right. emotional plotline? You know, honestly, until you asked me uh, the question before, I didn't even. And this may sound silly of me as a writer, like. Cause I was just thinking like the lonely hearts club. I always just thought of it as like Ben and Neil, but obviously Ian is 
probably a part of that club looking back. And so I don't, I think we were kind of chip story um, was kind of, we knew we needed to kind of get that going. Um, again, I can't remember exactly at what point Rachel came in, but I don't, I don't know that we were looking at that story. It's like, Oh, we also have this other relationship that is kind of um, playing out. Tragically is not the word, but like, you know, a romantic relationship, but doesn't kind of like end in a happy way that you, mm-hmm. you think of. And so um, I'm glad you, you guys kind of observed that because I didn't even cons- like, I didn't consider it's actually three love stories there in some sense. I, I guess I look at that as more of like um, this kind of launching off point for the chip, but you're absolutely right. It is a, you know, especially for Ian, uh, their own love store or, reintroducing mm-hmm. love story and how is that going to be ongoing through the thing? Um, so I admittedly maybe didn't see the connection until you just said that. So. <laughs> we, we fans are often known for, for seeing things that weren't intended to be there. And I'm, I'm just always interested to yeah. know if something was intentional or if it just happened that way. And, and we noticed and appreciate it anyway, regardless Absolutely. of the background. So it's cool. No, it's a great observation. Like I said, now I think the Lonely Hearts Club has suddenly gotten bigger, which is uh, <laughs> makes it even kind of more attractive. Uh, happy it's a like i said it's a happy episode but there at the end you're like oh if you look at those three relationships you're like oh man oof poor uh, that poor club. Um, right. They all, all came out to, pretty All scary. trying to do the right thing. Yeah. All yeah. trying to do the right thing, all being somewhat toxic with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something else is speaking of like the parallel storylines within the episode, um, I, I have, you know, since, since I've seen episode four and, you know, we got episodes one, two, and three as screeners. And then we got four and five. So there was a bit of separation between when we saw three and when we saw four, that said, immediately I was, I could not help but see for sort of this emotional sequel almost to episode three, because, uh, you know, I gave Raymond Lee his, his well-deserved laurels on, on the last episode of Fate's Wide Wheel, because I just think his performance in that episode and in particular, some of the moments that he has with Addison are just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant pieces of acting. Well, in this episode, not only do we get more brilliance, obviously from Ray, but Caitlin has a couple of moments in particular that are just mm-hmm. astounding and, and specifically the moment where she's, you know, she says she almost jumped into the accelerator to, to go after him when they were shutting the project down. I mean, that scene is, is very powerful and she obviously rises to the occasion when you're working on something like that, especially knowing what came before in season three or excuse me, in episode three, you know, what type uh, of thought and, and, and care goes into crafting a scene like that in order to, you know, to, to kind of pay some of that stuff off while also moving these characters forward. I mean, when I got this episode, um, and again, we kind of knew it was going to be the episode in which Ben and Addison, you know, break up for lack of a better um, term, even though they're technically already broken up by the happenstance <laughs> of, you know, three years and Tom and all that. Um, you know, I feel like the, the character arcs and those kind of things, uh, you know, sometimes we map those out. Those are less movable than, you know, again, are we going to do a 50s action thing? Are we going to be in the 80s? You know, those kind of we, uh, obviously we talk about inside, but sometimes it's like, well, what can pair along with those? Like, what's the best time period and um, host and story and environment to like accentuate the, the the character arcs and stuff? And I think this one was a big one because, I mean, it's, 
I had this actually funny story. I remember uh, I was on the bus. I don't know what day we were shooting, but I was on there with Ray and Caitlin and she just looked over at me and she's like, so you're just uh, the new kid coming in here and breaking up the, the fan favorite relationship. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> that is exactly what I did. But I was like, and that kind of hit me of like this again, uh, you know, say what you want about the, the episode in terms of like the whole, but like, I think you will look back at this one in terms of like, their relationship this is where it clearly like ended to an extent and like how devastated I think some fans will be or or maybe not but like it was a lot of heavy stuff and it was also a way for like you know Ray Ben's character you know it's been you know he's had three leaps this is his fourth leap it's been a very short time for him and how is he processing that we know we saw some of that in three and how he you know was a little more reckless and then for Caitlin who's had three years it's like this, those scenes we knew where they just both laid everything out on the table, like, hey, here's my side and here's what I'm going through and here's my side. And neither one of them are wrong, but neither one of them mm-hmm. like are right and it doesn't fix the situation they're in, but it is what it is. I think it was just nice for those characters to be able to lay out those cards and say, here, here's where we're at, what do we do from here? And then, of course, you know, Ben makes his choice at the end about what he thinks needs to happen. So um, I think we take those scenes very seriously because, again, the other stuff's interchangeable. We could have put that in a thriller. Uh, we could have set that in the 80s. But that character stuff, you can't really move forward with your story arcs until you have those moments. So I think you have to take care of the characters. And, I, and here's what's great with working with the actors. They know, you know, they know the characters. They, they've spent more time with their characters than you have. You know, as writers, we have to take care of everyone we know. We have, you know, anywhere from, you know, six to ten characters on any given episode to juggle. They sometimes only think about their, like, you know, what would uh, Ben be going through? What would Addison be going through? So sometimes you just talk with them and they're like, well, the last episode I was going through this. And so sometimes they can help recenter you on like, oh, yeah, because we're talking about episodes ahead of time. You know, we're, you know, you're breaking, you're writing four, but you're talking about five and six. And so they can help recenter you like this is where I think my character's head's at. And so it's really great to just check in with them of like, hey, um, given where you were last episode, like, where do you think you are? And sometimes you can make changes based on that or they accentuate certain act, a dialogue you've given them because um, they're like, well, you know, I thought my character would say it this way because, you know, they, they just have so many interesting diff- takes, I guess, on it. Um, mm. I enjoyed checking in with them in, during those scenes just to like make sure like, where their heads at and like if they thought that their character you know because it, it's surprising like how much um just tonally you change the way you say a word or you add a word and it, like sometimes in those big scenes like as you fans will read into it and they'll, it'll take on a whole new meaning so it's sometimes they'll add stuff and you're like wow that was a really good ad um and so uh yeah i think and this is just my opinion about the episode. When I go back and watch those really big scenes, like I still get teary eyed and I was like, I, I, I know what they're going to say. And I know like where it's going. And I'm just like the, the acting I thought in those scenes uh, was fantastic. So, yeah, it's great, great writing and great performances. It, it, the, the two together and the direction. I mean, the, the, just everything about particularly that, that scene where Addison and Ben are talking, um, I, I find it really fascinating that uh, your your story about Caitlin and what she said because <laughs> um, what I've seen online over the last few weeks is fandom seems to accept that 
they're over. There's some there's some theories that okay, maybe they'll get back together, but but basically, fandom accepts that they're over. What seems to have divided fandom is half of us think, uh, well, Ben is in the right. She should have waited forever, and <laughs> the other half understand why she didn't. And I love the fact that this gives after Ben's little rant in episode three. You can probably see which side I'm on. Um, after Ben's little rant in episode three, Addison gets a good chance to really articulate uh, her side. I'm. This isn't even a question. This is just an observation and to see what's going to happen tomorrow after this goes mm. out, what people are talking about online, um, because I do wonder if more people are going to say, huh, I get Addison's point of view now. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen, but <laughs> yeah, I, I admittedly stay out of the um, I'm, while I'm on Twitter and all that. I I, I stay out of the circus because I've seen you know things happen on other shows with Twitter and writers, and so um, I wasn't I wasn't quite aware of that. But I will say, you know, in writing that scene in which you have to be in both of their heads, like I, just imagining me in either one of those situations, neither one of them are great. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that like flip a coin on any given day and like, do you want to be Addison? And, and this is something when I talked to Caitlin, I think we added in the dialogue because, you know, from her point of view, when we wrote the dialogue, which is mostly there, I I know we added because she was thinking about like, she's like, well, Ben left me in this life. Like we had a perfect life and he thought he needed to go jump into the accelerator to save me. But like, he left me here. And I was like, Oh, like, we didn't necessarily ride it that way originally, but like she added that. And I was like, that would be hard when you think about like, again, and if you're in a relationship, like pointing at you, like you started this, you left me here, you know, like, mm. do you want to be, and again, and Ben's point of view, like he's left in terms of like just leaping and leaping. So like they all have their own, um, obviously arguments about like who is in the worst situation hurt the most. But I thought that was a unique perspective that she was able to provide for us from, from an actress's point of view of like, I was left here. I was left in this life and it it's not as great as, you know, everyone thinks it might be. So I hope, I hope when people watch that scene, they are, whether they're not empathetic towards um, Addison's character, but like can actually look at that and be like, Oh, I wonder would I rather be Ben or would I rather be uh, Addison? Because I don't know that there's a clear answer. And I, I think that's hopefully that's how we intended it is that you feel for both of them. And like the heartbreak of that is I think where um, the emotion comes from, hopefully, because if there was a clear black and white, like you did this and you're wrong, it's like, okay, it's easy to side with that, you know? Yeah. I, I think the, the, the pure like pathos of the moment that, that is evoked not only, you know, for Addison, but also for Ben, I think that that's the key is that you really, it, over the course of, two episodes in particular, you really do see both sides. And with this episode specifically, I think by the end, you can't help but kind of come to terms with it in some ways, you know, as a viewer. For me, like I, I I never was on either side, you know, because I understood where Ben was coming from. I understood, you know, where Addison was coming from. Um, So for me, it was, it's just been really gratifying to see the journey that they've gone on up to Mm -hmm. this point. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see where where it goes from here. One of the other things about this episode that stands out, I think, uh, especially from the prior three, is that we get to spend more time with Tom in this episode than any previous episode. Mm. 
what was it like to you know to to, to write for that character? Because it, I, I personally, if I'm being completely honest, I think it's probably the most difficult character to write for on the show right now. I genuinely believe that. I think that there's just to that character to me has got to be difficult because you don't want to do too much of this, you don't want to do too much of that. Um, so I'm very curious what what it's like to write for him, and then I have a, a follow up to that. But 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 well, let's go with that first. <laughs> yeah, and. Um... I believe he's introduced in two. So, you know, I was, this episode was kind of picking up, you know, an introduction of um, what we saw in two. Um, you know, we talked about Tom and, and what's interesting again, before they get cast, you know, we all have this kind of idea of who they are. We didn't necessarily have a prototype, but, you know, we kind of thought of him as like, um, uh, here's what I think the tricky part is, is like anytime, you know, we've seen these storylines reintroduce like, the other man, the other person, the third will, like what love triangle, whatever, you know, I think fans (laughs) will have their own preconceived notions of like, are they going to be evil or are they actually the one? And like, so just trying to tiptoe those lines, like we just want to make this like a character who is, you know, obviously there to do his job as good as what, at what he does. Um, Cares for Addison. There was actually a scene that was cut um, out of my episode in which you actually saw, they were like walking down the hall talking with like, Jen and Magic and Ian, but like you got the sense that like they've known Tom for a while and he is their friend. Um, which I don't know if you necessarily missed in the episode, but like the idea was like he's not while he's new to people at Quantum Leap, he's not like new to the group necessarily, and like everyone loves him. Um, and he doesn't put off a threatening air and is like has helped Quantum Leap get back on speed, is like there to do a job. Um I think we're just always trying to like make sure we are not like pointing uh, an arrow or like leaning towards like any of the like preconceived notions of like, is he good? Is he bad? Is he this? Is he that? We're just trying to play as like, he's a human who fits into the story and this is his purpose. Um, And then of course, you know, when you cast someone, they bring their own kind of um, mannerisms and stuff to it, which, sure people can read into, but you know, sometimes you get an actor and you're not necessarily like riding towards like those things. So you're like, I remember one time on set, like Peter was crossing his arms and I was like, does that make him look like he's being closed off and defensive? And I was like, and that wasn't written. It was just like, that is Mm. the actor sometimes inclination to like cross their arms or make a certain face and do all that. So I think we, uh, or at least while I was on set, I was always trying to be mindful of like, what what someone could read into and it not necessarily like we're not like throwing in a look there like oh again is he gonna is he gonna turn out to be this just because he made that one look so I was trying to be conscious of that um but yeah Tom as far as a character to write for I think what helped me is like he believes that quantum leap is this great um program which it is and I won't say that was his number one because obviously Addison is there but um like just keep him on the road. Like he is there to help. He is everyone's friend and he is a nice guy. And that is truly who he is. And then however he's perceived from there, like we really can't control, but um, yeah, sure. not, not necessarily the easiest character to write for because you are like on a tightrope in a way that the other characters, you can kind of like allow them to be like a little more free because they aren't carrying those weight of expectations as like a new character who's come to the show, I guess. Yeah, it's you know, it's funny to me because you mentioned the love triangle thing, and uh, obviously that has that has certainly been thrown around in the fandom. But for me, 
I don't see it as a love triangle at all. You know, I just see it as someone's moved on and someone has not. And there's a good reason why mm-hmm. he hasn't. And, you, you know, um, but the other thing, the follow up that I wanted to ask about Tom specifically is that something happens in, towards the end of the episode, which I feel is pretty revelatory and, and not just in terms of the revival, but the classic series as well. And Tom gives this theory about the nature of quantum leap being sacrifice that Sam, you know, made a sacrifice by going into the accelerator that Ben made a sacrifice by going into the accelerator and that it's a one-way ticket. Where did that come from? And obviously I know you can't give anything away, so I'm not going to ask where that, that leads, but I'm just so fascinated by the idea. I think it's lovely. I think it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, it certainly plays into the finale of the classic series and Sam never returning home. So I'd love to know a little bit about where that came from. And, and, you know, was that, was that one of those moments that sort of collaborated on, you know, that, that, that like Martin and Dean kind of give guidance there. Was that all you, was that, you know, I, I'm just very curious about that particular uh, aspect of, of the, the episode. Um, and can I throw in just a little extra to that? Sure. Just to, to, Maybe you can also um, include this in your answer. It also very specifically, that's quite a pivot from what we've seen so far in the new series. The classic mm-hmm. series was very much about God or fate or time is, is leaping him. The new series has been technology. It's a machine that's leaping him. And suddenly we get this very spiritual philosophical scene. So I, I'm also just interested yeah. in the fact that why now? Uh, why this pivot? Hopefully you're not disappointing with my answer. Uh, this would be <laughs> a great time for Dean to be on here and answer. Because I'll admit that is a scene that was not in the original break uh, that we talked about. It is something that Dean added um, probably right around the first draft. And I... Um, like I said, I don't know that we had any conversations in the room about anything. I, what I remember originally what that scene was supposed to be, was just supposed to be a Tom and magic. Like, Hey, we are two guys high up in this program who are carrying this bird of like time travel and saving the world. And like, what is that like when you're talking to like, um, basically appear, um, in a way that like, not that everyone else is not on their level, but again, they're they're carrying this kind of like mission on their shoulders and like um, what would they talk about? Um, again, I can't speak to, you know, the, the sacrifices in this, where that came from, from Dean specifically, I I've actually never asked him, but <laughs> I think it does speak to Tom's character in terms of like, again, his, how much he respects the program, how much he's thought about it. You know, he mentions his dead wife, and like you wonder, like what is what all? How much has he thought about time travel and what has happened to Sam? What has happened to Ben? And what kind of meaning this program has? Um, and and ha- moving forward, so I wish I had like an answer that was like this is exactly why I wrote that. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you'll catch Dean on another one and you can come back. <laughs> but I think that uh, will have to come from him because I honestly don't have uh, an insight, and I have admittedly never asked. So. Um, but I think I'm going to ask him now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See um, <laughs> this is a time travel show. Is the uh, is the dead wife going to have any relevance? <laughs> you can't answer that. I know. So well, <laughs> sorry, um, I just you know, I couldn't help myself. Here's what I always feel about shows. Um, you always have the liberty to plant seeds, and whether you decide to water them or not is always mm-hmm. a great. Um, thing you have in your back pocket because it's like sometimes you'll just write something and then you never pick it up again sometime and then but sometimes we'll come in on episodes it's like well remember we mentioned that thing randomly in episode two it's like i wonder (laughs) if we can water that seed and it grows into something so you'll have to see if uh 
it's Ryan Denny on that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good answer. That was, yeah, that was a great answer. Um, was there anything else uh, left? Because you mentioned earlier a cut scene. Was there anything else left kind of uh, either on the cutting room floor or just not filmed at all that, that you, you know, that you were really yes. like, oh, this, this is going to be great. And then it, it didn't Oh, my make gosh. It. I, this was honestly the most fun on set I've ever had doing this scene and it rained that day and it was cold. So that tells you it had to be extra fun. So, <laughs> and I, again, I, I think I'm allowed to talk about this, but in the original script, there was a scene. So when Neil and Ben went to go steal his tuxedo as currently <laughs> edited, um, the police come and they're arrested and that's how it ends. Originally uh, they take the tuxedo and on their way out, they're in um you know, Universal City Walk, but there was a bunch of impersonators out there. Um, I don't know that you can see them clearly in shot, but we had, oh God, we had so many. I can't even remember. Like there was a Doc Brown one. There was um, <laughs> a Marilyn Monroe one. Like we had tons of them out there, but Neil has, he's taking photos with Fan and someone just comes up and slaps the camera out of Ben's hand and you look over <laughs> and it is, a Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, impersonator <laughs> who only talks in Arnold Schwarzenegger quotes, <laughs> um, which is like things like, you know, he'll look at Neil and be like, you know, who is your daddy and what does he do? Um, and the guy was so, and yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Neil get into a literal fist fight. Oh my gosh. And that is actually how they ended up arrested. Um, oh, now, we had to cut that for time because, you know, we get 42 minutes and some odd seconds. But sure. Um, and we I mean, that was there from the or originally we were talking about, like, whatever actor we cast. Like at the time, it was Ted Dance. It's like, what if you run into an impersonator of yourself and they think you're better than you? But it's like, how do you realistically get like, how can we realistically shoot that? So we were somewhere between, I think. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Rocky and we literally put out a casting call and there is only apparently one guy who does Arnold uh, impersonations basically in the whole country. So we flew this guy out from Florida. Wow. Um, and he was lovely. He was so good. I mean, he was like, he was like six, five, six, six, like had to be like pushing through him. Like he was, he was like probably bigger than Arnold. I don't know. Uh, in a leather jacket, glasses. It was so great. I had, we had so much like the, like when the crew is like dying laughing, when he's like <laughs> doing these quotes mm -hmm. and like getting in fights. So that is one. And again, you could cut it out. Obviously it did not plot wise change the story necessarily, but I wish we would have had an extra couple minutes that we could have got that in there. Cause I think just for like Hollywood fun, like a memorable scene. Um, yeah that my money would have been on that one. Cause I, I still think about like, um, like I said, I have access to that, to those cuts. So I can always go back, <laughs> but I really wish the audience could have seen that because, and that's that tonal thing of like, is this absurd? And it's like maybe a little bit, but like to watch again, even on the day, like Tim Matheson arguing with this guy who looks just like Arnold and then Ray's in the corner, like trying to like, get them to stop fighting just in real life. I was like, this is, this is absurd, but it's so great. Um, I was trying to think if there was anything else major we cut out. Um, you know, there were some scenes that are obviously longer than what they were, what you see. You're not missing anything necessarily, but I know that scene with um, Addison and Ian after she just has the big fight with Ben mm. and they go in magic's office. That scene was actually much longer. Um, 
just had to cut for time. So, um, you know, if we were on streaming and we could have, you know, 55 <laughs> minutes per episode, uh, we could see all these things. But, you know, we were pretty beholden to that 42 minutes mm. change. Yeah, I can only hope that one day, you know, Peacock will do the thing they've done with The Office and, you know, put those extended episodes ah. on or something like oh that. Gosh. That would be awesome. Um, you know, here's a, here's a quick question, actually, to kind of go off of that. Now, obviously, with the Arnold scene, it's a little different because you change the circumstances of, of you know, their arrest. But, you know, do, do you all ever look at some of these scripted moments that might not make it to the screen as still being considered kind of like a part of the story, just maybe unseen. And so that you can use that to inform something that you might write down the road, or are you basically of the mind that if it didn't make the screen, it's not, you know, it's, it's not really a part of the story. And if we pivot away from something that we might've written, you know, three or four episodes back that didn't make it to the screen, that's okay. Um, I don't know that we ever, and again, other writers who've been on the show longer may have different experiences for the episodes I've been there for, I, I can't think of any that we've cut something, at least to my knowledge, that we would want to retread. But I know sometimes when something gets cut, we we try to think about, like, why was that cut and maybe we don't do that again? Or there was mm. something about it that um, if it wasn't for time, like, was it a tonal thing? Um you know, sometimes like point of views, like if you have a character like lurking around the corner following Ben and those get cuts, it's like, well, is that a network studio thing? Is that we don't want to show um, that? So I don't think we ever go back to them thinking we can like, not unless it was planted somewhere else and we just didn't get to see uh, the actual scene. But I can't think of any, but we do take those lessons of what's cut and try to, again, question, why was it cut? Should we not do that again? Um, yeah, just a lot. There's the weird thing about like, I guess making a TV show, there's a lot of different, like, you know, hands in the mix kind of thing. You have a lot of people to answer to and a lot of people who, you know, believe this is what the show is, or this is what we should have and notes and stuff and that. And so you're always kind of like trying to, um, you know, appease people. Some, so sometimes stuff just gets like cut for like, again, sometimes it's time. Sometimes it's a studio network thing. Sometimes it's a, we don't need that. Um, so you're always kind of just like staying on your toes, ready to like move any direction and, and, and make it work. But. Well, all right. I, you know, I do actually have, I do have one other thing um, that I, that I wanted to ask about um, just kind of what's coming up without any spoilers, obviously, mm -hmm. but can you talk about some of the things that you might be looking forward to the most, or if there's any, you know, episodes that you've had the chance to, to work on or see already that we haven't, obviously that you're really excited for, you know, for the fans to, to witness. Um, I don't think this is a spoiler, but the Hannah character um, I'm, I, and I think, well, I don't want to speak for all the writers, but I feel like we're very excited about that character's role in the season. And not only that, uh, I was a huge Liza Taylor mm -hmm. um, playing. That was really just cool um, that we got her. So uh, I'm just excited to see like, or for everyone to see kind of like, again, not only the purpose, but just the acting from Eliza. I think she's great. Um, and I, I can't say what the episode's probably about, but there are some time periods we go back to that. I don't know that people thought we would have went back that far. Sure. Say that. Um, and places we will, and the particular place we will go that I don't know that was in people's um, 
when you think of quantum leap, like, I don't know if that would be on your list of like 15 places we would go probably. So I think we were doing some really cool stuff, uh, you know, not only this season, but like coming up in this first eight, um, which I know will, will air, I think pretty subsequently. Mm. But um, I think we're all just very excited about um, what we've been able to do this season and, and make the show, um, you know, I always think it just like looks great. We always like do the best with our budget um, and cast and, and all those things. So I think we're all really proud of how it's turned out. So I think we're just excited for what the fans think of this new season in general. But yeah, I think those are two things or yeah, two things that I'm like, we'll be watching Twitter during a couple of those episodes just to see what people think yeah. right out of the gate of like, Oh, we're, we're there and we're in this time. Whoa, it's cool. So. I think for the the first eight, uh, thanks to the the trailer that aired at the end of episode one, I think we know the time periods and locations for all That's of them. Fair. So I, I've got a I've got a suspicion. I know the two okay, the two sure. things you're alluding to. There. I forgot the trailer <laughs> does. And we have had conversations about the trailers and how much they technically spoil, but I, we get it. You gotta like you know tease yeah. a little bit. I, I heard, like I heard a little bit of that myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love Hannah and I cannot wait to see what's mm. next. I think Eliza is superb and, and, and that was definitely, you know, I think episode three, um, it just, I really enjoyed her in the episode and, and what she brought to that, especially considering where like Ben was, you know, in, on his journey. Uh, so just to clarify then, so obviously you, the first eight episodes produced. Um, we've had the strikes over the summer. Am I right in thinking that the team are currently breaking the, fir- the, the next five episodes? And is that the current plan? I know obviously we've got the SAG strike going mm-hmm. on, but uh, are you looking further ahead than the next five? Or is this very much a, a block in your mind at the moment of a, a continuing story up to 13? Um, I think right now we're writing for what we know. And that is that we have five more episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know for a lot. I, I feel like I listened to, um, Sam, one of your previous episodes and there was mention of like other episodes. Um, that's always, a. I feel like in any show, there's always a conversation of whether they'll give you more. We don't know that. Um, mm-hmm. but it's always like this, like cloud looming over. Um, but, what we do know is we have five more episodes to round out the 13 and that is our focus. So um, I think I can say we're currently breaking 11. You know, what's weird is we have broke most of them uh, previously, but with the strike we've went back and changed a couple. So we've had to kind of do some re-breaking, but I, you know, we were supposed to resume shooting next month, but with the SAG strike, obviously if you don't have actors, you are shooting nothing. Yeah. We've made jokes about the writers uh, being actors, which none of us, I mean, background, uh, well, I can't speak for the other writers. I should, could only be like background and like a dead body with a sheet over them is about as good as I am. But, um, so yeah, I mean, until that is resolved, we technically won't be shooting everything, but we're going to try to obviously get our stories together. So in the event that the strike is lifted, um, we will be able to roll into shooting those next five. Um, but I think, uh, I was trying to think if there's anything else I can say for them. They're, it's weird. They don't, they're obviously of the piece of the 13, but they're also different because we've had the like, I think it's very rare that you get to like write and shoot the first date and watch them mm. and then kind of look at the last five because usually you're just doing it all of a piece and it's kind of like you don't get feedback until 
you're already done shooting all of them by the time you party. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it's too late. We can't go back and do anything. Uh, but we kind of had this lull that we've been able to like get feedback um, from, you know, the powers that be. And also now fans are starting to watch the first couple episodes and we're still writing. So uh, I think that kind of is in the back of my mind, like how we round out this last few episodes. So um, I think that's a unique case that you don't typically get um, unless there's a strike. So, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> you got to make the good out of the bad sometimes so you know sure. yeah yeah <laughs> but i again i really loved lonely hearts club i i just think the kind of the one-two punch really of three and four is is mm-hmm. fantastic and uh speaks well to the to the way that the season is going thus far just because there's so many uh high points already um and i i love the fact that we're getting these wonderful emotional stories about our characters. And even when you look at the stuff that's happening at the project, we're seeing more, you know, wonderful character moments between human beings, as opposed to a lot of, you know, exposition, which I know is necessary sometimes, but, but obviously, you know, going a little bit away from that procedural, you know, we have to find this document and do this and do this and, and, and leaning more into who these people are, what they care about and why we should care about them, I think has been incredibly successful and I really enjoyed it a great deal. Um, and I think Lonely Hearts Club succeeds at doing all of that very, very, very well. So um, thank you so much for joining us today, Christy. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. And I had one more, uh, which I was like, oh, I'm going to ask you guys a question. I won't put you on the oh, spot. Yeah. But I was, I was just saying one of the other <laughs> yeah. small... Um, and I didn't realize it until I was talking to the writers assistants because they're like, you know, they do the Twitter and it's like, um, you know, give us some fun facts for your episode. And mm. as I was rewatching it recently, I had forgotten about like all the movies and TV shows within this TV show that I had to come mm-hmm. up with, which was like sometimes really fun, but sometimes like even just titles we have to clear. Mm. Um, but I was very delighted at some of the ones that like you made it in and I they're not really, I guess, Easter eggs is not the word, but like if someone were to go through and track those, they're fun little, like, um, you know, you can kind of write a list of like all the movies that Neil and stuff was in. But um, yeah, I feel like my, my, my favorite was coming up with the sitcom awful good together, yeah. um, which just feels like a very like seventies, eighties sitcom. And then we got to name the memoir awful good, uh, mm-hmm, which I yeah. felt like was very within Neil's personality, but there's just like a lot of fun. If you listen to those, like coming full circus and duplicity, you're like, like, yes, they sound like terrible movies, which is what is, is funny about them. So um, hopefully someone on Twitter will make a little running list of that and I can. Check it oh, out. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, so Matt will definitely have it in his book. <laughs> oh, Matt, yes. Matt's, Matt has already done this. Uh, that, that, that list exists. And yeah, Yay. it did. It, it felt like his movies were um, they, for some reason, it reminded me of Jean-Claude Van Damme's career. Uh-huh. I don't know, I don't know yeah. what it was. It's just just had that kind of cheese factor. Yeah. Yeah. That was me just sometimes sitting at my desk, just like laughing, like just having my own little like laugh. as if like, this is so silly, but also so delightful that I like. Yeah. <laughs> think yeah. Of these. But it got very meta there I, for a while. And I'm like, oh, I want to okay. see all those. <laughs> right. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They, they, <laughs> There is a list already in the next edition of my book. So thank you for giving me something to write about. One of those, I just stole a title and it it doesn't mention a plot, but one of them was like an old feature spec I wrote. It was like the second feature spec I ever wrote. And I just like took the title. I was like, well, this is clearly never going to ever get made. So I'll just get the title made in a different TV show. (laughs) Nice. Which one was that? Oh, it was uh, when they are walking up to the wedding and they're talking about, 
uh, Ben's talking about his badge, and he's like, I learned that from Neil's movie Public Safety, and it's the flu weekend. Mm-hmm. It's literally just yeah. the title, Public Safety. I just threw it in there. I was like, I'm going to throw in one while and see if it clears. It ended up clearing. I was like, really? There's not a movie named Public Safety? It seems like there would be, <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't know, a security guy. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, there. sometimes you just throw stuff in there, and you're like, this probably won't make it. And then you're like, oh, no, it made it. But uh, So I get the hat. I'll have some fun um, with my family when they're watching it. I'll get to throw them some, like, yeah. This is what this is from. So. <laughs> cool. I love I love that texture. It, it, it definitely adds a lot, and it you know it, it makes that world feel even more real. Uh, and you know to, to to hear some of that resume, I know that awful good together in my mind was was very moonlighting esque. Like that's kind of where my mm-hmm. brain went with it. So yeah, uh, luckily I, I never I had that. to come up with a what is that show about? Because sometimes <laughs> uh, again. Like, I think I did the duplicity thing. It was like a clone. I was like, sometimes I, you just think of that on the spot, but then you're like, oh, but you want to sound like it could actually be a movie. Like, it can't be so silly. But it's like, but again, in the world of like 80, like if this would have been 70s, 80s, like times, like it also has to be just like tonally, just like a little absurd that anyone made that movie. Right. Like, or they wouldn't make that movie today, mm. obviously. I mean, they made so Honey, ridiculous. I Shrunk the Kids. So really right. anything is fair right. game. Right, yeah. <laughs> but you wouldn't make that movie now. So it's like you're thinking True. of a time. You're like, you're in the 2000s, but you're actually writing a fake movie that would have existed in like, you know, 10, 15 years prior to that. So I got very like, again, I probably spent too much time on it, but uh, those are little things. As a writer, <laughs> you get to like enjoy, and like no one will know the amount of time you spend on it but you know and it makes you happy so yeah yeah (laughs) it it makes us happy seeing those kind of little bits that sam says world builds so christy thank you so much for your time uh we've had we've had an absolute ball talking to you and uh it's been it's been so delightful hearing your recollections about writing an episode that i know both podcasts loved and i'm sure fandom will take their hearts as well uh Best of luck with the the upcoming episodes and congratulations on joining the Quantum Leap family. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks for having me. And um, I, I love doing these kinds of things. I haven't, I haven't done one of them in a while, but um, I, I just love that when, you know, there are fans, not only just fans in general of a show I'm on, but like the fact that you guys do a podcast uh, weekly to just talk about how much you love the show, I think means a lot to uh, us as writers because we feel again, to have people watch it so closely and want to talk about it and engage uh, in work that you've done is like extra meaningful uh, on top of the fact that we all love writing the show. And so thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Christy. Christy was uh, such a sweetheart to speak to. Uh, what, what you what you won't have heard on that interview is um, she, bless her, she was working around a one-year-old who was not always happy and, <laughs> and a dog who I, I think was probably happy. I'm not a dog person, but uh, I mean, that dog was snarling a lot, uh, which will have been edited out, but <laughs> I, I think it was a happy, I think it was a happy snarl. I'm not really sure. It, it was whenever I was talking, so I, I think it could sense that I'm not a dog person. Um, but aside from that, yeah, so much fun. And um, we we talked with her a little bit after the recording, and I think we, we definitely hoping to get a, her back on one or both of the shows in future when there's more to talk about. Because right now for her, this is she's eight episodes in, and they're, as, as you heard, they're talking about the back five yeah, at the moment. Yeah. But still, still relatively 
relatively early days for her. So uh, she's somebody we'd definitely like to speak to again yeah. later on down the line. Again, man, kudos and congratulations for getting all this great content for us. I love that we're talking to the writers. I love hearing about the process. I, I love everything about what we're bringing here because it's it's stuff that's so interesting to me personally as a writer, of course. You know, you always want to know what's it like in the writer's room? How do they break it down? What's going on? And, you know, I'm just happy that we're able to get these insights. To me, it, it makes the show so much more enjoyable because you understand how the sausage is made, so to speak. And that's the thing. She talked us through the process and she explained some of those bits of terminology that I, I was interested in. And she also shared some deleted scenes with us. I, I love deleted scenes. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> sadly, we'll probably never see them. But uh, yeah. Well, so cool. <laughs> Just so great to imagine them. So cool. So yeah, thank you, Genevieve. Thank you, Christy. Thank you both for some wonderful interviews. And you know who else is wonderful? Matt, our new patron, Brad Brassfield. Brad, you are wonderful. He is joining us on Patreon at the $5 Leaper level. That means that Brad gets access to all of our exclusive bonus shows over there, including shows like Leaps Elsewhere, where we discuss uh, projects that have Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell in them that aren't Quantum Leap. Uh, we also have Fangent. Uh, it's the stuff that Matt, Allison, and I talk about when we're not talking about Quantum Leap. It's all of our little fan obsessions and the things that we're doing currently. And you've also heard a recent flurry of Oh Boy interviews over there. For members who support us at the $10 level or above, I interviewed them about their Quantum Leap fandom. And I've put so many in the can recently, I feel like I'm really connecting with our listeners. It's been a lot of fun to talk to all of you. So thank you for your support. I've had such amazing discussions with them. I really have. So check all of that out at our Patreon site. That's patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. Thank you again, Brad Brassfield, for your new pledge of support. We have very little feedback, surprisingly, on this episode, Matt. Yeah, from, from Ashes Embracing My Inherent Cringe Arc. Still love to understand what that means. <laughs> Ashes Embracing My Inherent Cringe Arc says, I wonder if Ben leaping out right in front of Hannah will put her on the path to finding out Ben's secrets in a later episode. The guy would have been all disoriented and not know her. Hmm. There's a hmm emoji there. That, that, so that was I was reading that as well. I hadn't considered that. I was so I was so jazzed with my own interpretation that maybe Hannah could see Ben leap. Maybe she's got the natural alpha state or something, and maybe she witnessed the leap. But that's another mm. way to go about it. Again, I wish that we had stayed with Hannah instead of leaping with Ben. Isn't that the weirdest thing? <laughs> no, no, I, I get you. I'm just interested in what's going to happen next. I think we we all are. Where and how are we going to see Hannah again? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to them reintroducing the character so that we can get some kind of resolution to, to how all of this is going to work. I'm just so intrigued by it. Yeah. So anyway, thank you, Ash, for your continued Patreon support and for the feedback. If you would like to be like Ash's embracing my inherent cringe arc and give us silly names, there are many ways that you can contact us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can write us a letter at P.O. Box 542. Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us on the phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Instagram at quantumleappodcast or x 
at Quantum Leap Pod. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Quantum Leap Podcast. And as I said, you can always go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. Just remember, we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, what's next? Well, next week is One Night in Koreatown. And uh, here's the synopsis. Ben lands in the body of an 18-year-old working for his father's shoe store in Los Angeles' Koreatown at the start of the explosive 1992 riots. Facing an emotional connection in the riots to his past, magic joins Ben on the leap. Wow. Mm. So we're going to have magic as the hologram, I guess, in the next episode. Well, that's interesting. Well, given the way that this ended, I suppose that somebody had to step in. I was was kind of expecting Ian because they've toyed with that in the past, but interesting twist. I guess, you know, we had speculated, you know, if they were going to be doing uh, something about the LA riots and you have a black cast member, maybe you put them as part of the story. I'm hoping yeah. that this one, it, it intrigues me because as you know, one of my favorite episodes of Quantum Leap of all time is Black on White on Fire, which dealt with a lot of the same kind of issues. So yeah. I'm really interested to see how the new series handles things like this and uh, if we can get just some of that superior drama that we've gotten from mm-hmm. Quantum Leap on this topic in the past. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to discuss it with you. So excited. And I can't wait to see magic as a hologram. But we'll talk about that next time. Until that time, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. Check one, two, check one, two. Let's see how I'm doing on Audacity now. If you could read my mind, love. Okay, that's good. And I'm Matt Dale listening to what sounds like Elvis Presley. Everybody, every time I sing you say I sound like Elvis Presley, that's bullshit. Bullshit, (laughs) I tell you. I have range. (laughs) Hey, nothing wrong with Elvis. (laughs) No, and there's nothing wrong with Elvis, except for, you know, maybe the way he died. Yeah, try not to do that. But he was a guest on Quantum Leap, so he can't be all bad. Yeah. If you do die like that, though, it's going to make a great chapter in the next edition of my book. Oh, thank you. I I look forward to helping you with that. (laughs) Maybe at some point, you know. Yeah. If I if I do have an ignominious death, I want you to celebrate it in the next edition of your book, please. I I'll I'll have a full color photo section. Looking good. All right. Let's call up Dem Notes. Dem Notes. Oh, hang on. Save the scraping for during the recording. Let me get my notes up. There we go. All right. Scrapity scrape. Scraping done. There will be no more scrapes now.
Okay. Well, you know, Ben gets into scrapes quite a bit. And out of scrapes. Oh, that's the <laughs> references. <laughs> anyway. Every single one of those that you have to edit out is a reference. Uh-huh. That's you. That's what you sound like. Carry on and keep chewing. Uh.